all of the stuff we're talking about today, particularly the calm technique, which is the first part of the interview, that's the core technique. That's the foundation. And I, when I first started coming up with this model, which is a living, breathing thing that I'm always adding to, I thought I was, I was thinking that it wouldn't work as well with teenagers, but it works better with teenagers. It is literally teen whispering. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey friends, welcome back to the Better Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I sat down to speak with Jennifer Kalari. She is one of the nation's leading parenting experts. She is a highly sought after international speaker and the founder of Connected Parenting. A child and family therapist with a busy practice in Toronto and San Diego, Kalari is also the author of Connected Parenting, How to Raise a Great Kid, and the book, You're Ruining My Life, But Not Really, Surviving the Teenage Years with Connected Parenting. Kalari is a frequent guest on Canada AM, CBC, Breakfast Television, CTV, News Channel, Globals, The Morning Show, and her advice can be found in many Canadian and U.S. magazines, such as Today's Parent, Red Book, Parents Magazine, and Canadian Family. Jennifer is on the Chatelaine Magazine's Health Advisory Board and entertains and educates her audiences with her powerful parenting model based on the neurobiology of love. Kalari's wisdom, her wit, and her down-to-earth style helps parents navigate a modern-day parenting problems, offering real-life examples, real-life strategies, practical and effective tools to help parents connect with their children. Now, we sat down. This is going to be a doozy of an episode. We sat down. It was over two hours, but I feel like I could literally speak to Jen for hours on end. And we actually ended the podcast by saying, okay, we're going to pick this up and we're going to do another podcast exclusively on teenagers because we ended the conversation talking about teenagers and how we can stay connected and uh, you know parenting through love with them. So the podcast spans a lot of material. This is going to be incredibly groundbreaking. If you've not heard of Jennifer Kalari's work in the past, please listen up. Whether you are a parent or you are thinking about becoming a parent, this is going to be an incredibly useful podcast for you. So we talked a lot about the difference in the way that we interact with our babies versus when children start to acquire language and how we move from responding and being attuned with our babies to reacting to our toddlers and our children and what the difference is there. We talked about mirror neurons and what that means in the brain in terms of connection. We talked about empathy. 
And we moved into what her fundamental principle in her work is, which is called the CALM technique, C-A-L-M. So we walk through what that means and how we can be applying it in our everyday life. Now, this episode, I really opened up. Jennifer has been coaching me because I was having some issues with my children and uh, specifically around sleep and getting our children to, they were very anxious uh, around sleep and I was just at my wits end. I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong and I called Jennifer a couple months ago and she has been getting on calls with me, coaching me and Giovanni in terms of how we can show up better for our children. And so I share a lot of these personal stories with you today. Now, this is a little bit new territory for me, but I wanted to be open and honest and really just being vulnerable with with you, the listener. Um, I do that in the hopes of making you feel like you're not alone, because certainly when I was, I had the ugly cry and I was like, Jennifer, I'm just the worst mom in the whole world. Like just, I don't even know how I deserve these kids. You know, she said, that is one of the most common things that I hear in practice that, you know, women and men, but women, especially, we just beat ourselves up over and over again. And we think we're completely alone, which I did. We think we're the only ones. So I am sharing this as a, an olive branch with you to hopefully it is val- you find some value in it in your own life and maybe it'll help you interact with your children differently. Or if you are someone who is considering becoming a parent, this will be incredibly useful in terms of not only how you will interact with your child when they're upset, but when they're happy. And as we said multiple times in our conversation, this is not just a technique for when our kids are upset. This is a technique for just connecting with humans in an authentic and real way. So I hope that you enjoy this. I know I got a ton of value out of it. And we finished, like I said, talking about teenagers. And I realized the time we both were like, what? It's been two hours. It's crazy. So we are going to pick it up on another podcast and we are going to talk just about the unique challenges that raising a teenage girl or teenage boy in modern society is like. The one thing I wanted to mention as well is if you are finding the conversations useful, I have now put together show notes for each episode and I am sharing them with you. So if you want to see the show notes that I'm preparing, you can go to bettershow.co forward slash show notes. That's S-H-O-W. N-O-T-E-S. And what you'll receive is all the science-backed resources that I've prepared for better living. So you'll receive my notes on from my prescription pad, studies, as I mentioned, my interpretations of those studies, personal best practices, what I have learned from each guest and how to implement the information from each episode. So if you're interested in that, in addition to the podcast, uh, just go to bettershow.co forward slash show notes. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Kalari. All right, Jen, I am so excited to have you here today on the podcast. This has been a couple months in the making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very excited to be here. And we were, this conversation was really born out of almost a, a personal crisis. So I wanted to have you on the show in the hopes that sharing your work and the frameworks that you've shared with me and my family are going to help the other parents, the mothers, the fathers, the caregivers that are listening, because you had made a comment 
you know, sort of in passing, like, oh, this is one of the most common things that I deal with. And you're, you're not, I was ready to, you know, hand myself into child services. And like, you know, I was like, I'm the worst mother. I can't figure this out. And you're like, this is the most common thing that I do. So, you know, settle down, here are the frameworks. This is what you're missing. And let's, let's move this forward. So I wanted to almost do a bit of an experiment and say, okay, I'm going to do everything this woman tells me and see how it goes and then bring you on as a, uh, as a, not an after, cause we're not quite at the after yet with our children, mm-hmm. but to, to describe <clears throat> what the progress has been, the changes that we've, that we've noticed in our family mm-hmm. and to really expose and, and do a deep dive into your frameworks, the calm technique, mirror neurons, empathy, all sleep. We're going to talk about today, all of these things. So before we go into all of that, um, for those listeners that are not familiar with your work, I would love for you to start with your origin story. So I know you started your career as a social worker, you're working with troubled teens, and that was really the birth, you know, in those few moments that I'd love for you to share, the birth of Connected Parenting. Can you share that story with us? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a long time ago. This is going back over 30 years now. I finished my undergraduate degree in psychology and I was really excited and I was really green and I wanted to get out there and make a difference and do important things in the world. And I signed up to work at this group home, which was actually what's called a receiving home. So they're, they're kids that live on the streets. They're taken from the streets to the outside of the city. So the home was actually in Etobicoke, but they want them away from the downtown area because that's where they keep getting drawn back to. Um, all of those children had been working on the streets as child prostitutes. So they'd all been sexually abused and physically abused and deeply traumatized and all had been victims of what are called Romeo pimps. So these are men who pretend they love them and care about them and then basically sell their services. That's kind of how it works. So they were just double, triple traumatized. So they came to this receiving home and they were, it was what's called semi lockup. So the doors weren't locked, but all of their personal belongings were locked up. And if they ran away, it was our job to get them and bring them back. So I'm right out of university undergrad. I don't know what I'm doing. I've no business being there, but here I am. And we were trained in this group home to be very tough, to be very militant. To, we were actually instructed not to engage with these children. Don't get close to them. Don't connect with them because they're leaving in three months and it's just, they're just, they'll just take advantage of you. Some of them were 11, Steph, like 11 to 16 years old. They're babies, babies. Living in a scary house with all unfamiliar people, no parents. Um, I couldn't do it. So I ignored that. And especially at bedtime. So when the makeup came off and the teddy bears came out and the jammies came on, they turned back into vulnerable children. And so we were told to just, you know, shut the door, say goodnight and don't get sucked in. And I couldn't stand that idea. So I would sit on their beds and I'd rub their backs and I'd sing them lullabies and I would tell them bedtime stories. And these children who didn't want to talk about it the next day, it was embarrassing, melted into this routine. It was, it was, I can't even explain to you what it felt like. You just knew that something really important was happening. They didn't want to talk about it the next day, but I noticed the next day when it was time for me to get those children to do the things that I needed them to do, they were much more likely to do it for me. So all of a sudden I was seeing compliance. So as this connection grew, compliance grew and trust grew, and I could feel it. And it was interesting because the staff were like, oh, she's a bleeding heart. They're going to walk all over her. This is going to backfire. She's going to see it's not going to work, blah, blah, blah. That never happened. It absolutely never happened. And my favorite story, and I know you, I, I know I told you this story, but 
there was one particular girl. I just remembered her name the other day. It just came to me. Her name was Penny. And she was only there about a week and a half. She particularly loved the bedtime routine. Um, and I remember she was leaving. She was going to another group home with her um, social worker um, and saying goodbye. And she was getting into the car. She stopped. She ran back up the sidewalk. She came up to me. She put her hands on my cheeks. And she said, I just want to remember this face. The face of someone who actually cared about me. Mm. So I never forgot that moment. That was the moment I knew I want to be a social worker. This is what I want to do with my life. This is what I want to learn about. And, and I want to immerse myself in this. It was a really incredible moment. And I never forgot her. I forgot her name, but now I remember it. Um, but I'll never forget her face. And so that started Connected Parenting. And it was from there that I really dove into not only the science, um, but the intuition and the feeling and the power of love and compassion and empathy. And the marriage, that is such an important marriage of the science and understanding the science and the neurobiology mm-hmm. and the intuition and the love and the connection. So mm-hmm. one of the, I've, I've heard this story before and I, I love it. And one of the things that I think you would agree with is that the difference between you and maybe the, the protocol that was be impl- being implemented from some of the other therapists was that you were responding to her versus reacting to her. So, you know, can you, can you explain the difference between I those can, two things? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the difference is very clear. And we'll come back to this in our whole interview. Human beings only have two emotions. We only have two. Love and fear. So, you know, anger, resentment, jealousy, bitterness, self-loathing, all of that is fear. Mm-hmm. And so that group home and, and many institutions, many parts of our world actually are based on fear and running them from a place of fear. So that position, don't let the kids take advantage of you. Don't turn your back. You know, make sure you stay on top of it. That's all fear. And when someone is already afraid, as many of us are, but especially these children, that fear meets fear, which just creates double fear. And that's, that's really what happens. So it, the method and what we'll talk about is how to use your intuition, how to engage with your own higher self, really, your own internal wisdom that is always locked in to love and how to recognize when you are reacting to someone instead of responding. And when you're responding, it'll come from love. And when you're reacting, it's going to come from fear. That's wonderful. And I love that distinction. Can we dive into the science around that for a moment? So what is happening? So when you are responding to someone, what are some of the things that are happening in the brain and the body? And then let's contrast that with when you are reacting to someone, what is now happening in the brain and the body? Absolutely. So, I mean, most of us know the kind of basics around the brain, but we don't always pay attention to it. And we don't know how it affects our psychoneurobiology and our parenting and our relationships. So basically we have the frontal lobe, That's the part of the brain that's in charge of um, inhibiting, organizing, prioritizing, motivating, shifting attention, holding goals, all of that stuff. And that's the part that takes the higher perspective. You know what? If I yell at this person, I could lose my job or I'm going to feel bad about it later. So that's the part that really inhibits and organizes. It's our inner parent, essentially. Uh, And some would say that's the part that's connected to our higher wisdom, right? Our higher self. Then we've got the limbic brain. This part of the brain is primal. It's just, it's just inter, inter, interested in survival. That's it. Is this life or death? How to look after yourself? And that's where the reaction comes from. That part of the brain overrides the frontal lobe. So we like to think of ourselves as thinking beings, but we're not. We're actually feeling beings. It goes through feeling first. It goes through the limbic center first. 
and the limbic part of the brain first, and then it goes to our frontal lobe. We love thinking it's the other way around, but it's not. <laughs> this way. So what happens when we have a reaction, our brain, our limbic brain assesses first, am I in danger? It sends cortisol, adrenaline, all, all of the hormones that, that cause us to react. It increases our sensitivity, stimulates our parasympathetic nervous system. So when things are louder, things are, you know, when you're a little kid and you're like, you go down to the basement to get something and you hear a noise. And then for the next 20 minutes, you, you think everything's around you. It's right. It's that. And you go into a fight or flight state. In that fight or flight state, the brain will, the, the limbic system will override the frontal lobe for, because it needs to, so you think about it this way. Adrenaline is involved in this. When adrenaline is involved, it must be an automatic response. So if you're crossing the street, you're not going to use your frontal lobe. You're not going to go, ooh, that car is coming really fast. Now, I wonder if I could run that way. Eh, might be faster if I run. If you do all that thinking, you're going to get hit by a car. You have to go, ah, and run to the side of the road. And then you're like, oh, my right. Right, so you're literally lifted out of your body. And that's a, a time-based adrenaline response. And it's, it's, thank goodness, not particularly necessary. At least we're lucky enough for not to be in our world right now. Many people, it still is. Um, but for us, most of the time, we can use our frontal lobe when we're mitigating danger. But it does have the ability to override. And if you're really stressed, it will override when you don't not want it to. And that's when you're yelling at your kids and you're like, oh, I'm the worst mother in the world. I hate myself. Why did I do that? It's because your limbic brain took over. And that's, so that's really the difference, right? The other thing you have to know as a parent is it takes 25 years to grow a frontal lobe. That's a long time, right? So as parents, we're not actually parents. We're substitute frontal lobes. So we not only have to manage ourselves, but we're the frontal lobe for our children. And it can get really messy. It's hard. Parenting is hard. Parenting is hard, but that distinction, I think, is so useful because I don't think that we as parents realize that our children's brains are in fact different from us. I think, you know, when, when we have babies and they're little and cuddly and we can, you know, we are so good at trying to, like, I remember my child, I knew what cry, I knew which cry meant I want to be hugged. I want, I'm hungry. You know, we get so attuned to our children. And then as they, I don't know at what point it is, but at some point we just assume that because they can talk or because they can now communicate with us, uh, in a way that's not just crying, that they should just know. They should have all the life experiences that right. we've had and they should understand that, you know, the ice cream falling on the floor is not a big deal. You could just get another one, you know. Me, so um, that's a really I, good point. I, I, so I love what you're saying here. And, you know, from a, let, let's talk about it in the, in the opposite. So we've talked about this idea of this limbic system, this automatic system. And if you think about uh, one of the ways I like to remember it as well is if you were to put your hand or I've had my child try to put their hand on the stove, your brain is not gonna be like, hmm, what should I do? I should probably flex my bicep to lift the hand. You don't do that. It's just an automatic, you bypass thinking. You just respond and, and, and reflect. It's a reflexive uh, behavior. So on the opposite, if, if a child, you know, the ice cream drops on the floor, you know, whatever the example is, if they are feeling understood, can you contrast what's happening now? And if, the, if someone is now uh, not trying to just brush them off, what now is happening in the brain and the body? And how is that different from the cortisol and the limbic system? Yeah, that's such a beautiful lead into this because, well, first of all, so, so you made the point perfectly that children are not mini adults. They don't have the life experience that takes years and years to develop. So we're holding that for them. We're their frontal lobe. 
And when you deeply understand someone, when you have this moment of deep understanding and connection, you'll actually change the biochemistry. So through every cell in the body, instead of adrenaline and cortisol pumping, you'll now have serotonin and oxytocin, natural endorphins, natural opiates. These are reward chemicals. These are very different chemicals that soothe the brain, calm the brain, and help the brain have a, an oxytocin-based response to a threat instead of an adrenaline-based response to the threat. And that's what we expect when we're having, when we're disciplining our kids or we're asking them to do something or we're in a confrontation with our spouse, we're expecting them to have an oxytocin-based response. Oh, you're right. No one hadn't thought about that from your point of view. Honey, you know, when you say it, it makes a lot of sense. When do we ever do that? When we're limbic and we're feeling threatened, it's, well, that's because you did this. And if you didn't do this, I wouldn't have done that. And we end up limbically experiencing each other instead of really having these, um, oxytocin-based conversations. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to get back to that, and part of it is just awareness. The other point, too, that I think is really important is when things are reactionary, when your limbic system is taking over, the limbic system and the subconscious mind is basically just a giant tape recorder. It's just a recording machine. That's all it does. It just records fearful events or um, exciting events, just any kind of stimulating events, but primarily fear-based events. So it's going to dip into a pool of every fear-based experience you've ever had, uh, memories, um, your own trauma, difficulties from your own childhood, your own experience. It's like just, it just dips its foot right into that deep well of fear, which is very rich in all of us. And so we have to learn how to override that a little bit. So when you are parenting your children in this way, where you're connecting with them, where you're joining with them in, a, in this moment and you're parenting from love, not fear, that's when you're gonna get those beautiful reward chemicals bathing every cell in their body and they're going to have a response instead of a reaction. And the, the flip side or the other benefit is as you're bathing your child's brain in these beautiful chemicals, you also get those babies Absolutely. too. It's medicine. Yeah. It's medicine, it really is. It's, and it's really, it takes practice and we'll, we'll dive into it. This is not easy, it, you know, it sounds easy, but it's really not easy. It, it takes time and it takes investing in this process. But I sort of look at it this way. You know, we live in such a crazy world right now. There are so many crazy things going on. And as parents, it's so frightening sometimes to think, how am I gonna protect my child from all of this stuff? The political things are happening in the world, digital you know, assaults and, and cell phones and all kinds of stuff. The best thing to do is, is focus on the emotional climate in your own house. And it's not going to be perfect. Of course it's not. In fact, you have to have some difficulties so you can figure out how to manage in the bigger world. But how you manage your household is the greatest gift that you can give to your, your children because they will take that into the outside world with them. And that's really all you've got as a parent. I love this so much because I think as parents, we are so concerned with the nutrition that we are giving our children. We want to make sure it's all organic. I mean, I am like, there's no plastics in this house. Everything is organic or bust. And what you are talking about, and I've heard you refer to this before, is this is emotional nutrition for your children. And we don't, you know, it's, it's much easier to see a physical wound than it is an emotional one. And we don't often, you know, the, the symptoms of emotional uh, wounds are very subtle. And I think this, is, this technique is really, as you start practicing it, and by no means am I an expert. I am just, I have just started on this journey, but I, I, it's been so profound because you can start to see 
when you are, you start to notice when you're limbic versus when you're prefrontal, prefrontal cortex, and you start noticing, okay, is this what I'm about to say? Is it something that I really want to say? Or is it something that is in the best interest of the child? Because often when I just want to say something, it's, it's more limbic. It's, you know, it's this thing that's going to give me some temporary satisfaction. Like you're so blah Uh, versus, okay, let me hold, let me just, let me just take a second to override what my limbic system wants me to do right now and get into my frontal lobe. And I I will say that meditation has been incredibly helpful for me Mm -hmm. because that my practice of meditation, along with your technique, has really given me that space between the limbic system override and Mm -hmm. my frontal lobe saying, actually, that's not what you should be saying right now. You need to be holding this child in the best version of themselves and what you're about to say is, is not right. Yes. Oh, this is such a rich conversation. There's so many places that we could go with what you just said. It's so amazing. So let me pull out a few really important pieces for listeners because I love this. The first thing you said was that was, what was the first thing you said? It was beautiful. Where you said, am I, oh, I know it was, am I about to say something that I feel like saying? Yeah. yeah. Or am I about to say something that my child needs to hear? Right. Mm-hmm. And those are two very, very different things. So that's the first thing. The second thing you said, which I think is so interesting, is when you're angry or when you're reacting, when you're in that limbic state, if it feels fantastic, it's wrong. It should feel like, oh, I can't believe this. You should feel your own frontal lobe back in there. Down, right? Yeah. If, if you don't feel that and you're just, this is ridiculous. You know what? One of these days I'm just going to leave. I'm not, I'm not going to. We're saying stuff like that, which we all do sometimes, and you can always repair. If it feels fantastic and you're angry, it's wrong. And that's a really great thing to remember. And you can actually catch yourself um, feeling like I'm just free flowing here. And if you're free flowing, you've got to stop. Yeah. And if your spouse or your partner is with you and they're saying, honey, can I help you out here? And I've got this. I've got this. You don't have this. Okay. Right. <laughs> you have to have some kind of signal with each other that it's yeah. like, okay, I need to go and take a few minutes. The other thing you said that's so interesting is it gives you this space, right? To figure out if you're reacting or responding and you really only need 30 to 90 seconds. You can only be angry, full on angry for 90 seconds. That's it. More like 30 actually. Mm-hmm. So what happens is this initial fear response, your brain kind of detects, am I being chased? Is this life threatening? Is this, is this like, am I in serious danger here? Once it decides that it's not, then what happens is it's an emotional danger. Your brain is now registering emotional danger. And the way we stay angry is we talk to ourselves. I can't. Unbelievable. And he did this and she did that. We keep having these conversations in our head in the moment. Mm-hmm. So as our child responds, oh, there he goes again. Unbelievable. And we keep talking ourselves into the, so we can stay angry for a very long time. But in these periods of 30 to 90 seconds, are we rebooting the anger? And we do, that's a choice. The first 30 to 90 seconds, it's not a choice. After that, it's a choice. Wow. And that I think is, is so profound and how meditation has helped me because I think meditation, I mean, we can talk about, this is a different podcast. We've, we've actually talked, we've had meditation experts on here, Emily Fletcher being one of them around the strengthening what meditation does to activate your parasympathetics and strengthening your frontal lobe, which 
when your child is triggering you, if you are talking to yourself and saying, I can't believe that they're saying this. I can't believe they're doing this again. I've already told them 4 million times. Your own triggers from your own childhood. Now, as you were saying, you start talking to yourself and revving yourself up and getting yourself into this frenetic, angry state. When, if you can just disassociate that a little bit and say, okay, this child is a beautiful soul. They are a beautiful soul. And, you know, to your point where you said there's two emotions, they are either love or fear. Where are they behaving right now? I need to come down and help them get out of this fear-based response, however that's showing up, rage, anger, you know, whatever. Um, Well, and we can do that by responding from love ourselves. Yes. Right. So we have to stay up here and then our child will come up here and meet us. And it's interesting you talk about meditation. When I work with families, I actually teach parents how to meditate, but meditate on their children, Mm. right? Meditate on your positives and on the good things in your life, but also in the things in their life. So I actually tell parents to find a lovely piece of music, sit there and imagine your child at their absolute best, the times when they've been really lovely with their grandparent, or they've cared about that little bird that's in the backyard, or if it's your teenager, which sometimes it's so hard to see, um, to just imagine them, you know, forehead to forehead with you going, mom, I'm just trying to figure this out. This is hard mm. for me. I got these big feelings and I'm trying to figure out how to manage in this world. You find all of these ways to anchor yourself in these images that are deeply anchored in love. And really what is meditation except tuning in to your highest self, tuning into the part of yourself that loves you always. And it will never go over there with you when you're yelling. It never will. And that's why we feel so gross. When we're over there yelling, the reason we feel awful is because we know deep down that's so far from who we really are and how we really want to behave in that situation. The other thing that's really important, this is so key for moms, parenting is so tough. It is exhausting. It is frustrating. And we are constantly trying to do our best. But we are pulled out of that beautiful... um, higher self state all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. you can be tuned in and then you want to get your child out of the bath and they splash water in your face and tell you to shut up. Well, that's really hard to tune in to your best self when you're, are you kidding me? Right. So Mm -hmm. we end up, the more we know sometimes, the worse we feel about ourselves sometimes. Right. So the more we know how we should be, the more angry and upset and devastated we get with ourselves when we can't. And I'm really all about repair. I, I, the, the, the pattern that I teach is you're going to get it right. And that's great. Celebrate that. And then you're going to get it wrong. And it's still not wrong because you can learn how to get back. Your child will learn. You still love them. You, you will learn through all of this healthy adversity as well. As long as the intention is to get back to love, it's all life is messy. Life, it's messy. And it, it's got to be messy inside your house too. So I really want moms in particular, dads do this too. But mother, I hear I'm the worst mother in the world. I can't even tell you how many da- times a day I hear that phrase yeah. from moms. Like dads will say it. They do say it. But mothers, it's so heavy in them. It's so mm-hmm. intense in them. They're so mad at themselves. They're so frustrated. They carry that around. That makes them limbic. That makes them fearful. So really, I really want to talk today too about how to be nice to yourself, how to forgive yourself. This is all part of learning how to be a parent and how to help your child be the best human that they can be. Well, it's interesting you say that. I I have said I am the worst parent to you on more than one occasion uh, when mascara has been pouring down my face and I'm like, you should just get child services because I don't know who let me take these kids home. You know, so I I resonate with what you're saying as well. And this is for, for men and women, but I think particularly for women, 
especially the way that we raise our children today, it is so different than the way even my when i when i think about my grandparents uh who they're they're portuguese um i'm part portuguese part lebanese but the, my portuguese side my grandmother and grandfather had a home immediately the home to the right was their daughter immediately to the home to the left was their son and their families so help was always just a driveway away yes yeah, the village giovanni's parents italian when they first came to, you know, came from Italy, living in Toronto, the entire family was in, so it was the grandparents, the aunts and the uncles, Gio's parents, Gio and her, and his sister. So you had literally seven, eight, sometimes 10 people in the house at any given time. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for bringing this up because I think we are so isolated now. I mean, I, we never, there was no such thing as a nanny when I was growing up and maybe that's just, you know, we were sort of middle-class and maybe nannies have always existed. I mean, there were, but, but, but it really is more of a trend now. It's more of a trend and we don't have our families to rely on as much. And that we have these single person dwellings. We feel isolated from our communities. We feel isolated from other mothers. We feel isolated from our family. Maybe the family's not in the same city. So often everything that we're about to talk about, the calm technique, the mirroring, all the things that we're going to go get, get into in a moment, this usually is falling squarely on one or two people, you know, mom or mom and dad or the mm-hmm. primary caregiver and nanny. And I think that um to to your point around forgiveness it's hard it is it's and really it was never hard. meant to be done by a nuclear family yeah this job was never intended to ha- just be t- a two person job it never was it was intended to be grandparents aunts uncles older siblings cousins mm-hmm. churches synagogues like it was it was meant to be a whole community and so we become increasingly isolated in our culture. There's a, there's, let's dive into this because this is a really important piece. And this speaks to, when, to, to how hard mothers in particular and parents are on themselves. It was never meant to just be a nuclear family. And in that nuclear family, you often have two people working. Yes. So that's craziness. It's really, really tough. And on top of that, we read all these things and we listen to everything and we listen to how we should be tuned in and we should be aware and we should be you know, knowing our triggers and that then we feel worse. Well, I know all this stuff and I'm still yelling. Right. So it is really, really tough. So there's a few things that are really different about our culture today. That, that's probably the biggest. The other, there, there's been a huge shift. There's so much going on. The world looks nothing like it did when we were children. Nothing. When we were kids, our parents would say goodbye and we'd run outside and we'd play. And you play yep. with kids of all different ages and you play kick the can. And, and you know what? Sometimes things were great and sometimes kids were mean and stuff happened. Okay. But kids were out there learning how to play. They were learning how to be heard, how to listen. You know, they were learning some, some really important life lessons through play, by the way, which is incredibly important. And it's the only medium that kids actually really understand without adults hovering over them. They were learning some of this on their own. Then somebody would ring a bell or they yell from the porch and you'd go back for dinner. So that's gone. That, that doesn't happen anymore. That, that doesn't exist anymore. Kids are either inside with a play date, with a parent popping their head in every 10 minutes, organizing the kids and telling them what to do, or they're on a screen. So that's the first thing. The second thing that has really changed is, is media. So kids have so much more information. 
They know mm-hmm. so much more than we did when we were kids. So we'd go to kindergarten when we were five and the teacher would talk about volcanoes and we'd be like, ooh, and you'd go in the library and there'd be books and you'd open a book and you'd see the lava on the volcano. Now kids have done a lava kit at, you know, Mastermind and they've probably been to a volcano and they've watched 10,000 shows on volcanoes and they get to school and they're like, bored, seen this, done this, right? So they have more knowledge. They have more experiences. They also have way more power. So children today have a tremendous amount. We'll talk about that shift and why it's happened and what to do about it and what's not so great about it. But children have far more power today. So when you go back and you're talking about your life when you were little or when Gio was a little boy, if you talk back to an adult, what would happen? Oh my God. We'd be smacked up in in the corner. Yeah. You wouldn't even want to, at school, I don't remember kids acting out at school. And if someone did it, we'd be like, oh, right. The teacher was always right. The teacher was always right. And the teacher, so if you got in trouble at school, you'd get in trouble from the teacher. Then you'd go home and get in trouble from your parents, Mm -hmm. right? Then your parents would take you to the kid's house that you did something to and make you apologize to the kid and the parent. There was this sense of community around you and that adults were in charge. There was a hierarchy. Adults were here. Kids were here. So there was a lot that wasn't great about that. And I think that's part of the swing, right? Kids didn't have a lot of rights. They weren't heard. Um, oh, you're bullied at school? I'll sack it up. You'll be fine. Um, kids were spanked. And you know, there, was all, there were physical uh, punishments. There were a lot that wasn't great. But there are a lot of very important things that we've lost. And I'll get to that in a second. But that hierarchy is actually really important. And it mimics the hierarchy in the brain, frontal lobe, midbrain. Mm. Right. So kids had this intuitive sense that adults were in charge. So I, I mean, I'm much older than you, but I remember going shopping with my mom and you'd go to the butcher shop and then you go to the vegetable shop and then you go to the post office. And in each of these places were adults who knew you. Oh, how was your mom's surgery? Oh, how was your, like there were conversations. There was this sense of community that everyone knew each other. Now you go to big, you know, stores you don't see the same person. You rarely have contact with the same people. People are going to, you know, their religious settings less and less often, once a year, twice a year. Um, there's just not this kind of community sense that we used, that we grew up with. Then you've got media. So what are kids watching? They're not even watching shows anymore. I don't even know what they're watching now. YouTube stream. YouTube. My kids watch YouTube. Yeah. But prior to that, it was TV shows where the adults were just idiots. Silly, stupid, ridiculous people who didn't know anything. TV dads were the worst of all. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, kids, there was trouble and the kids had all the answers and they were smarter than the adults. And that's been the theme in programming now for at least 25 years. When I was a kid, and I'm sure when you were a kid too, there were shows and there was trouble, but it was the adults that taught the lesson at the end. There was mm-hmm. this sense that, that you know, the adults had to impart this wisdom. Which, so what's happened is we've taken away this sense that kids are safe, that adults are in charge. Adults, if you don't know them, adults are dangerous now, right? Um, so, so there's this now increasing sense that um, children just feel more afraid and they have too much power. And when children have too much power, they act out and they act out hoping to feel the inhibition, which is us, which we're not very good at anymore, <laughs> or we feel guilty about, or we feel like we're being mean. Right. So it's gotten very, very complicated. I'll just, I'll throw out a few really amazing things that will just kind of blow people's minds. And these are old. It's probably worse now. This was a study done about five years ago. Um, And it was done in Canada. Two out of five Canadian parents believe they should be able to sit in on their adult children's job interviews. What? Yes. 
Yes, there are human resources departments that actually have people who are devoted to helping out employees' parents. Wow. Universities, colleges are bombarded with parents calling, advocating for their kids, wanting to, you know, I, I do every, every, every spring, I go and do talks at different camps, teaching these methods and these, these, um, this philosophy really to camp counselors who are really just kids, um, teaching them how to use these techniques with their, with their campers. And the camp directors tell me that 50% of the calls now are from the parents of the employees. Wow. So it's gone a little wonky. So the metaphor that I give, and you'll know this one, but it's a really powerful one, is imagine you're on an airplane and it is a turbulent, terrifying, you are petrified. Okay, it is a white knuckle flight and the captain decides he's going to wander down the aisle and say, hey, everybody, how you doing? We could do 30,000 feet if you want or 28,000. I could try going around the storm. <laughs> what do you guys think? What would you do? <laughs> right? Are you Get crazy? back in there and take control. <laughs> Are you crazy? I'm yeah. a passenger. Why would you ask me this? Right? right. And then for the sake of argument, let's say the cockpit door is open and the captain's in there screaming. I hate this job. Why is that red button flashing? I don't understand why the control tower is not answering. They don't pay me enough for this. How are you going to feel in that seat? Petrified. Petrified. And we think about how we look sometimes to our kids. We are either pleading, honey, please, please come with mommy. Don't you want to go in? Don't, please stop jumping off the couch. Please stop. Doing. We plead. And that energy is we are literally in every possible way, energetically handing over that they are in control. And they're going to feel like that passenger on the plane. Is she nuts? I'm five. What do I know? Right? So then, and if we're yelling and screaming, we're also, both of those are fear, right? When you're yelling, you're afraid. And when you're pleading or you're begging, you're afraid. And as soon as someone's afraid, immediately children are like, uh-oh, this person's in charge. I'm in trouble. Yeah. Right? They're looking to us. They're gauging all the time. Uh, and looking at us for that, for that comfort that we are in control, that we are in charge. That's probably the biggest thing in parenting that's been thrown out the window in the last 20 to 25 years. It's, it's that children have way too much power. And yes, there's been this beautiful um, shift to understanding that, that children are human beings and we want to bring out the best in them and we want them to be surrounded by love and we want to be very conscientious and aware of our own issues and aware of our triggers. That's all huge. I'm not saying that's not huge. Keep that. I love that. And that's a big part of connected parenting too. But we're not being very good frontal lobes. And so parents worry that when they set limits or they give a timeout or they take something away that they're damaging their child, they're, tra they're traumatizing their child, they're hurting their child. No, you're acting as that substitute frontal lobe. And without that, you're going to have an increase in anxiety, motivation. You're going to have procrastination. You're going to have emotional dysregulation. You're going to have uh, panic attacks. You're going to have you're going to have anger issues, which is these are all things I'm seeing as a therapist across the board. Ask any educator. Ask anyone who works with children. It, it's absolutely unbelievable. It is an epidemic of anxiety in particular out there. We'll get to sleep because sleep is one of the biggest indicators of that. But that uh, that's sort of the big picture of what we're seeing. So parents need help. They need guidance, they need support. They're trying to parent, either trying to parent in ways that our parent parented us, our parents parented us, which literally kids look at us and go, no, I don't care. Take it away. That doesn't matter. I'm not doing that. Shut up. I hate you. <laughs> like things that we would never have said to our parents. Or we are um, pleading and giving them way too much 
oh, or I guess we're screaming, yelling is the or, right? Yeah. We're just getting so angry and then you end up hating yourself. What kind of a person am I? I know better than this. I meditate. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm insightful. I know this. Why am I still being so horrible? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is really important. This is a, what connect parenting is a very modern way to parent and it brings both of those things together. So that's a key piece. Yeah. And I, I love this conversation because I think to your point, we either parent the way that we were taught and we all, in, we all internalize our parents, whether we want to or not. And I think there's also a bit of an overcorrection. Like we've gone the other way. Like I had my parents hit me or my parents didn't let me do this. So now I'm just going to let it, it's going to be a carte blanche for my child. Yes. Yeah. And I also think just to come back to that point with women, I think that we almost fetishize this idea of being the super mom. Like I have the laundry done, the house is perfect, I'm in heels, I look sexy, my and my child is happy and play with, you know, and contented. And it's just something that we have to give up because we have to and I and I have an issue with this too. So I'm, you know, yeah. I'm saying this from a I'm saying this, you know, for my own benefit as well as the listener. It it's hard to ask for help now, it feels like you're inconveniencing someone when you're like, can I, I'm really struggling. Can you help me? Yeah. But it, it's, it's just necessary to be the best parent that you can for that child. Because it was never meant for you to do all this by yourself, let alone in heels, mm-hmm. right? It's just not possible what we're asking. And the biggest thing that happens to us as parents, I mean, it happens in life in general, but in parenting in particular, is the, it, there's this gap between what we expect ourselves to be able to do and our children to be able to do and what actually happens. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, I, I do nothing but teach this all the time. And I have plenty of hideous moments as a parent where I think, Oh my God, I re- I've written two books. This is a joke. I mean, it can take you to such a, a challenging place and it's not that your kids will mis- misbehave. It's how you handle it when they do. And it's how you forgive yourself. And that modeling is just as important to your children as well. That's really key. And that expectation is huge. It just happened this morning. My husband woke my daughter up. Olivia's 16. She just turned 16 a couple of days ago. My baby is 16. Um, and I have a 26-year-old and a 24-year-old, so there's a, a big gap in their ages. And he, he woke her up. And of course, she will go, get out, leave me alone, right? But he's, and we know this. He, he works with me at Connected Parenting. We still have this idea that we're going to go down the hall. We're going to say, good morning, honey. And our teenager is going to go, good morning, mom. I'll be up <laughs> I know how important it is to beat the traffic. Like, no, that's never going to happen in a million years. When yeah. you say to your kid, oh, you know, you're, you, know, you yell at them for how they're behaving with their sibling. They're not going to go, you know what, mom, you're right. I am lucky to have a brother. And I'm not going to share my best toys with him. We have this crazy expectation that our children are going to just get it. Yeah. They are not going to get it. They have to learn it the way we had to learn it. So you have to understand that gap. Don't walk down the hall thinking that your child's going to bounce out of bed and thank you for it. They are going to roll over and say, get out, oh, and, and put the pillows over their head. You still have to go back and wake them up and there's still consequences if they don't get up. But don't have the expectation going down the hall that they're going to thank you for it. And, and it's that gap in expectation, I think that causes so much pain because we feel like it's our bad parenting that they're not behaving in a certain way. Yes. We think that because we've learned these lessons ourselves, that it's our job to transfer them to our children. It doesn't work that way. We didn't believe our parents either, and they're not going to believe us. They have to figure it out. And so much of parenting is really about helping your children to tune in to their own intuition, to their own best self, to what feels good for them um, and what makes sense for them. And we're so busy telling them what we think they should think. And then there's that gap in expectation that everybody ends up upset. 
And that's a really big problem. We really, because we started out the conversation talking about fear and anger, right? So when we parent from that place of fear, we're not letting our children tune into their own intuition. So here's a couple of things that are really important. We've talked a lot about the brain, but I want to talk about the heart because the heart is actually really important. The heart is a, a biomagnetic instrument. Okay, it sends out a huge electromagnetic magnetic field. The heart actually instructs the brain, not the other way around. So we are deeply connected in this energy field uh, from heart to heart with everyone that we care about and everyone that we love, probably all of us on a, on a grander scale. But this is really important. We're going to bring it back to sleep in a second. But you know, your child is, is you're lying down with them and you're thinking, please go to sleep. Please go to sleep. Oh, oh, I've got stuff to do. I feel trapped. I'm stuck here lying down with you and I just want you to go to sleep. So like, they will not fall asleep. But the minute your mind wanders and you think about something else and then you come back, you look, your child's asleep. Yeah. What's happened? We are rhythmically and deeply connected to our children. So that love and fear thing is really important. I'll give a really quick example, and then let's dive into both the calm technique and sleep. I had a mom, uh, this happened about a month ago. So this is a mom, I love her, she's amazing. And she's sort of a recent client and her daughter is a university student and is a really kind of gladiator kid, you know, one of those really spicy, feisty, fight with the world kinds of kids, but really bright and has tremendous potential. She'd been at university. She came down the stairs, you know, with a crazy bun on top of her head and bags under her eyes and you know, came down the stairs like this, you know, her first morning back after university, after exams. And all the university kids look like, it's a badge of honor, right? You walk around in your schlumpy sweatpants and your Uggs and your bear, you know, your bun askew and you walk like this and you've had your coffee. And so she came down the stairs and this is how her mother greeted her. Oh my God, you look terrible. You've got bags in your eyes. You know, you had mono twice last year. You look exhausted. You haven't been taking care of yourself. How am I going to trust you to be on your university hit looking after yourself like this? That's what she's greeted with at the bottom of the stairs, mm-hmm. which immediately turned into, I hate you. This is my hate coming home. Yeah. Turned into this huge fight at the bottom of the stairs instead of this moment where her daughter was back after several weeks of being away at university, it turned into this ugly moment. And then the mother is upset that the daughter doesn't appreciate where she's coming from. But that doesn't feel like love. Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I love you? That does not feel like love. That feels like rage. That feels like fear. Fear, yeah. So if she had parented from a place of love and she can always use this to adjust and move back to, there's you can always redo and repair. If she'd said, oh baby, look at you. You look so tired what a few weeks you've had it's just been crazy i'm so happy that you're here how can i help you what do you need that moment would have gone so differently right which would have helped her tune into herself they could have had a conversation about how she's taking care of herself versus this right right that's the key that's the really important piece so so where do we want to go from here because this is this conversation is so rich we can go in a million different directions yeah, let's start. Let's just start with connection and communication. So you've talked about, and we can start easing into this. Let's start. Let's start with just a base, like limbic bonding, mm-hmm. baby play. This is something that you have instructed me to do with my with my children because I have not one, not two, but three gladiator children, which we will <laughs> which we will define uh, momentarily. But let's just talk about 
how we can attune to our children, how we can, how we can bond with them. So let's talk about limbic bonding and baby okay. play. Let's first. So limbic bonding, baby play, it's really just snuggling and cuddling. It's, it's just immersing yourself in that alignment, that, that, um, that kind of moment where it's pure love, right? You're not worried about where you are in time, what you should be doing, what's, it, you're just literally in that space where you're just in this kind of deep cuddly moment with your children. That is the brain food. That's the emotional nutrition that you both get, by the way. That's medicine. And when you're having those moments, what's happening is oxytocin is releasing. Now, oxytocin is a really powerful hormone slash neurotransmitter. It's incredibly important to mental health. It's how we connect to each other. It's also known as the love drug or the tend and befriend hormone. Mm -hmm. And it is the hormone that releases during connection. It's responsible for social cognition. It's what helps us understand empathy. It triggers the mirror neuron cells in the brain, which actually help us relate and connect and, and emote and uh, feel empathy towards another living thing. And in those moments, a few amazing things are happening. So oxytocin is a cortisol blocker. So it blocks cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. You know all about that. That has everything to do with sleep and weight gain and stress and uh, health and autoimmune disorders and all kinds of things. So cortisol is our natural immune defense against that. It, cortisol, uh, uh, oxytocin blocks cortisol. And there's a bunch of studies done on this. Um, it's pretty powerful. The other thing that it does is it speeds up, speeds up neuroplasticity. So the higher the levels of oxytocin in your bloodstream, the, um, the faster your brain is making connections. So as you're trying to learn all these things and access all these things that you've been practicing and listening to and reading or whatever you're doing in your life, you're going to learn it faster. And so is your child, right? So we think about school, we think about intelligence. This is absolutely key to learning. A well-bonded, well adjusted, well-loved child is going to be in a much better position to learn and remember and build the neural pathways necessary to support that learning. Strengthens the immune system. It actually makes you stronger, healthier, and more resistant and resilient to disease and infection. It really, when I say it's a superpower, it really is. It bounces back so that you get the same effects in your brain um, and, it, and it, it builds resilience, emotional resilience over time. So limbic bonding is a really important way to give your child that medicine every day and to give yourself that medicine every single day. We all know how to do this. It's all very natural to us. Um, and, and, and the mirroring technique, which I'll jump into because it's sort of an offshoot of that, we're all pretty good at naturally. We don't need lessons. We just have to remember how to do it. So if nobody would pick up a baby and go, how are ya? How are things? Okay. Like no one would do that with a baby, right? You look at the baby and you go, oh my goodness, look at you. Look at that little face. We have this moment where we're aligning, where we are deeply connecting. And when that happens, you can feel it. You can feel it in your body. So in those moments, that's where you get the flood of oxytocin. Um, that's medicine for both of you. When, so, so there's a few ways to get it through play, through rubbing noses, through eye gazing. Eye gazing is the best. Just put your hands on your child's cheeks and gaze into their eyes and watch what happens. Feel it. And your children will often ask for it. Can we eye gaze for a second? I'm feeling nervous. And then you have this beautiful moment where you're like deeply aligned and connected. It's beautiful. Um, you can show them story, tell them stories about when they were a baby. They love to hear stories when they were a baby. You can show them pictures. You can sit and watch baby videos together. You can pull up the baby book. Children love this. And as you're doing this, 
you're creating this connection. If for some reason your child doesn't want you to cuddle and touch them too much, and there's lots of different reasons for that. Some kids are very sensory. You might have a child's own spectrum. You might have a child that's you know, sort of deeply overwhelmed in that moment and they don't want you to touch them. Um, then you can do it to the photograph. Look at that. Look at those little chicks. Or go, go find an outfit that they used to wear. Or a favorite stuffed animal or a teddy bear. Or start singing a song that they really engaged with when they were little and watch the power in that. This is probably hands down the most powerful thing you can be doing for your child. So that mom with the teenager, for example, when she sees her tired, you know, rough looking butt on her head, bags under her eyes, you know, maybe instead of getting angry an appropriate response using this technique or using this limbic bonding would have been my baby, look at you. And like grabbing her and maybe hugging her, touching her, something like that. Yes. And it really doesn't matter how, like parents will often ask me, well, how old, you know, how old does a child have to be? To do it? As long as they're into it, it doesn't matter. Everybody loves it. Yeah. Right? And if you do have a teenager that's like, oh my God, what are you doing? You don't have to get defensive. Don't say, oh, I hope you have a child one day and they do this to you. You just say, oh, I forget sometimes that you're still my baby. I know it drives you crazy. And then walk away. Don't do it in a fight. I, don't do it like that. Yeah. But just kind of walk away in that neutral, loving way. I promise you, your te- I don't care how old your child, they'll come in 10 or 15 minutes later, they'll give you a little bump, they'll put their arm around you, they'll do something, you'll get it back. You'll get it yeah, back. And, I, and I would lo- I love, I just want to add to this because this is something that I study in my own practice. We are deeply, we are hardwired for connection. And I can't recall what country it was in. This is like, you know, a few decades ago now, but they couldn't figure out in these particular orphanages in maybe Russia or Romania. I can't, I can't recall the country, but the kids were all, the babies were all taken care of. They were fed, you know, dry diaper, warm place to sleep, but they weren't being cooed and nuzzled and cuddled with. And they had, I think there was a 40%, 38 or 40% uh, death rate in these orphanages. And they coined this term failure to thrive. Mm -hmm. So we need this connection. We need this baby talk, this limbic bonding. And I love that word um, because it bypasses, right? It's like not the frontal lobes. It's just, you're getting into that temporal area where you have these emotional centers. Um, So let's, let's move into mirror neurons and how the connection and that limbic bonding that baby play now starts to activate the mirror neurons. And I think that's a nice way to get into the calm technique. So I'll give you an example. If you, let's say you have a baby and they're fussing and they're crying in the bath. Nobody would walk up to the baby and say, you know what? This is ridiculous. You have a bath every single night. It's fine. I don't understand why you're still crying about it. No one would do that with a four month old. They'd walk up to the baby and they'd go, oh my goodness, I know you're cold and you're fussing and this towel's scratchy. And they know, the baby has no idea what you're saying, but the baby can feel because there's this alignment, right? This heart connection that you get them. And, as soon, and that's where the mirror neuron cells come in. The mirror neuron cells start to trigger. They start seeing an exact replication of what they're feeling on your face, which is what stimulates the mirror neuron cells, which is what releases the endorphins, the natural opiates, and the oxytocin, which bathes the baby in those beautiful reward chemicals, calming the baby down, right? And then telling the baby that everything's going to be okay. So when you're, the thing is like when a baby's lying, they don't know what's going on. So so first of all, mirroring bypasses language, which is really important because babies don't have a fully developed language center in the brain yet. Um, But what's happening in those moments is you know that they, they, you get them. 
then they can calm down. As soon as the baby understands you get them, they don't have to keep sending a fear response. I'm in danger, I'm in danger, I'm in danger. Oh, look at my mom's face, look at my dad's face, look at my grandma's face, it's matching mine. They get that I'm registering that something's not right. Their face now switches to something else and now I can match that. And that's how the mirror neuron cells connect us. We are social beings. All of us are social beings. Every single one of us is here because someone loved us. Someone mirrored to us, someone looked after us, someone cared for us. So those babies in that, in that um, orphanage, what would also happen if they didn't, because there's a huge uh, infant death rate when there's not that connection. But babies who survived would have had very different brain development. They would have a very difficult time with what's called theory of mind, understanding what someone else may be thinking or feeling. And all of that social language, all of that important interaction that really is, we are brain builders. We are not only frontal lobes, we are architects of our children's brain. So it's through those experiences, like the bath example I just gave over and over and over again, where we teach our children about the world. There is more brain development outside of utero than in. We are helping our brains, our children's brains develop by, by interacting with them and by creating the environment that they're in. And so as we interact with our children that way, that's how they develop theory of mind. Oh, I can now feel empathy for someone else because I feel safe enough and comfortable enough to have my needs met. Now I can explore. Now I can think about other people. Now I can take some risks. Now, here's what we do. Around the time of language acquisition, we start to drop a lot of that mirror. So let's say you have a four-year-old in the bath now and they won't get out of the bath. Now it looks a little different. Right now we're like, you know what, honey, you've got to get out of the bath, please. Mommy's getting upset. Look at mommy's face. This is not mommy's happy face. Mommy's getting angry. Look at your brother. He's already in his pajamas just once, just once. Can you listen to mommy? Right. And then they're splashing. Don't you splash me. Now we three, three and a half, four. Like now we start counting. Right now it's a whole different experience that we're having. The child is, and, and children live very much in the moment. They live in the now. The bath is warm. They're having the best time. They don't know it's 10 minutes till bedtime. They don't know they need their 11 hours of sleep to function the next morning. They just know they're having a blast. And you're mean because you're taking them out of this wonderful state, causing them to be cold, put them in bungee, scrunchy pajamas and shove them in bed where they're alone and they don't feel like going to sleep. So you have to bridge that with the connection. So the same way you did with the baby, you would say to the four-year-old, you know what? I totally get this. The bath water is the perfect temperature. You put your hand in, oh, that's why you love being in here so much. And you know what? You hate being cold when you come out. You start engaging. You start connecting. Now they start seeing, ah, oh, mommy's getting me. Daddy's getting me. Right? It's all about sending a message. I'm upset. And if you don't, set, if you don't register the message back, if, it, if they don't feel like you get them, they're going to keep hitting the send button. And they're going to escalate and escalate and escalate until you're so angry now that you're both limbic and now you're screaming and yelling and trying to grab them out of the bathtub and then they're kicking you and then you're trying to get the towel and then they're running around the hall naked and then they're screaming and laughing because you know you're yelling and it's just a, a, a nightmare so in those moments that's all any of us want we just want to be deeply understood and as soon as that happens we can move on does that make sense whether you are four or 44 <laughs> or 404. That's all we, I think that, and this is why this is such an important conversation because this applies across the board with human interaction. Mm -hmm. It'll help you with your child, of course, which is, you know, your focus and your expertise and why we're talking today. But this has helped me with adult conversations. Oh, this has absolutely. helped me with my conversations with myself. 
so it's so powerful. And I think to your point, and I've seen this, when my children do not feel like I am understanding them, I am meeting them where they are, they will dig their feet in the sand until I get it. Yeah. They will continue yeah. to escalate. And I mean, I've seen that in adult, I've had adult mm-hmm. disagreements as well, where that's also been the case. Yeah. Um, and they will do that every single time. And so will every human being. Yeah. Right? We yeah. have this innate need to be deeply understood. And then we're so busy trying to get the other person to understand us that we're not understanding them. And then you, that's what an argument is. That's what a fight is. And the closer the person is to you, the harder this is to do. So I love your point about this working with everyone because it does. I mean, I tell parents, go and use this in your work. Use this with people every single day. Use it with neighbors. Use it with your spouse. It's, it's magic. The, I can't even explain to you what you get back from the world, being able to approach other human beings this way. It is truly like literally walking around with this little superpower that you can just handle any conflict. It is unbelievable. So one of my favorite stories, I don't know if you know this one, but I used to be a social worker for the Toronto District School Board. So I worked in the inner city. And in the inner city, the schools were jammed and packed and there was never enough parking spots. Like it was always a nightmare. So I ended up always having to block a teacher in, but I'd ask for permission. Is it okay if I park behind you? And anyway, this particular morning I asked this teacher and she said, okay, fine, no problem. Uh, But I have a dentist appointment at 1130. So your car better be gone. I said, no problem. I have a group at another school. I'll be out of here by 11. I ended up on the phone with this kid from another school who said he had a gun in his backpack. So that school was on lockdown. He would only talk to me. I'm trying to talk to the principal. I'm trying to manage the police. I'm trying to handle all of these different situations. And of course, at 11 o'clock, I have not moved my car. I hear over the PA, Jennifer Colari, please come and move your car. Jennifer Colari, move your car. I can't. I'm still dealing with the situation. I come down maybe 10 or 15 minutes later. Now that's a long time for someone to be standing and waiting for their car to be moved when they have an appointment. This woman, her she had curly hair. It was standing on end. She was beside herself. So as soon as she saw me, how dare you? And she swears, she's swearing at me. She's screaming at me. I I have an appointment and you told me your car would be blah, 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 blah. Literally my hair was blowing back. Now in that moment, I can respond or I can react. I can respond in a place of love or I can respond with a place of fear. Now, this is from years and years of practice doing this, but I lined up with love. How would I feel? 15 minutes waiting for someone to move my car. I have an appointment with a specialist, which takes months to get. Of course, I'm going to be beside myself. So I line up and that's what I said. I promised you I would move my car. I stood here and told you that my car would be gone. And it's like 10 minutes past when I said I would move. See the, see the attunement? Yes. There's this resonance. There's this calibration, right? And as soon as you do this, she doesn't have to keep sending her message anymore because I have deeply and believably and truly understood if you're doing this as a technique, I hope this works, this better work. I better shut this woman up. It will not work. Mm -hmm. It has to be very deeply authentic for you to step into someone else's place and into their world and calibrate with that. Two or three statements. You know, she didn't actually super calm down, but enough that we kind of moved our cars and and dealt with it. And, you know, I drove home thinking, oh, I wouldn't want to be in her class. And I can't believe that woman's a teacher because she was like lost it on me. Um, But by the, you know, halfway home, I was thinking, okay, I'm really happy with the way I handled that. I feel good about that. There's nothing left in me. There's nothing left in my gut that made me feel gross about how I interacted with that human being. So I feel okay. The next morning she came up to me. And I thought, oh gosh, here she comes again. But she actually came up and said, you know what? I am so sorry. I was horrible to you. I couldn't sleep all night because I was thinking about how disgusting it was to you in the parking lot. 
that is the power of this technique, right? Active listening or effective listening, that what I call the customer service response, wouldn't have done it. I understand that must be so frustrating. I understand that I promised you that I'd move on. Can you hear the difference? Yeah, there's no authenticity. And it yeah. feels like a technique and yeah. it's using observational statements. It must be, it sounds like I understand. No, you don't, right? So when you're using those observational statements, it pulls you out of the situation. Your brain then has to process the language and then it hits the limbic system. The calm technique, which we're actually talking about and we'll break down, is when you've got that true calibration in that moment. You're truly on the same channel. It's like a little tuning fork where you're truly resonating with the other person. That's the superpower. That's how powerful this story is. And it's funny because I was telling this story to a huge audience of people. It was actually for Campu Jigeus. And one of the, um, the people who listening, <clears throat> I just finished this story. And his wife had called him in the middle of the presentation. I said, you idiot, you left for your stupid presentation. You left your car in front of mine and you took your keys with you. And I have a job interview this morning. And he flew into like, oh my gosh, that's so frustrating. You had that job interview. You've been preparing for them. My stupid car is in the way. And I think I did that to you a month ago. This is what he started doing right away. And she's like, you know what, honey? It happens. I know these things happen. I love you. Don't worry. I'll take it. I'll take a cab. It'll be okay. Right then, so he jumped up and told this story on the tail of the other story. So when I tell you this is the greatest gift that you can give yourself and your family to help you calibrate and tune in with your highest self, the best version of yourself. And when you blow it, you know how to get back. And the only reason you feel gross. So let's say I had a fight with that woman. I started yelling back, you know the morning I just had. What am I supposed to say? Hold on to your gun while I move my car. Like if I had a huge fight with her like that, in the moment, as we started the conversation, I might have felt like pretty energized, right? Because anger certainly feels better than fear. But I would have driven home going, oh, I just got in a fight with someone in the parking lot and I'm the school social worker. That's not going to work. That's no good, right? I would have felt horrible because in the end, it's too far away from what I know is my best self, right? So that, those yucky feelings you get inside and that you feel as a mom, it's really just because you're off. You're off from where you want to be. So instead of getting mad at yourself for those things, thank yourself and say, okay, that feeling of sadness or frustration with myself or shame is telling me, that's my little emotional GPS system telling me I'm off course. And now I need to get back on course again. And next time I need to get back on course faster. Use it as a calibration. Use it as your brain is an instrument, your body is an instrument and your emotions are your indicators. I love this because it is also about not leaving residue. So when you talk about, I, I went home that evening and I said, listen, it didn't go exactly how I wanted. She was still irate and you know maybe the outcome wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. At the end of the day, you can say, but I didn't leave any residue there. I, you know, I showed up as the best, most compassionate human that I could. And you can, you can leave with your head held high. And to your point about mothers, I think that when we you know, promise ourselves that we're not going to yell today and we promise ourselves that today is going to be a better day, it's because there's residue that's left over from the way that you showed up for your child. So, yeah. um, and, yeah. and now I want you to think of that residue as just an indicator. It's information. Yeah. It's information. And you use that to calibrate. And you're going to blow it. There's days you're going to blow it, which is why it's so important to repair. 
right? So, so you do blow it and you yelled and you lost your mind and you told them to go live with neighbors and whatever things we said. <laughs> then you go back and you say, oh, remember this morning when you wouldn't put your snowsuit on? And I told you if you were, you know, if you didn't put them on, I, would get, I wouldn't come home after school or I, you can go live with the neighbors if you like it better there. I didn't stop and think about how frustrating it is to put yourself in that hot snowsuit when you don't think you need it. That's really what it is, right? So you could repair is, is really where you'll get it right. That's where you'll have most of your energy in the beginning is the repair part. I have used this technique in repair as well. And it's, it's um, I'll give you a quick example and then I would love to dissect the calm technique. Yeah. So the other day, Andreas, my, he's my nine-year-old and came home. He had a two page uh, assignment. He had to write something about his holidays and, you know, the things that happened and what he was excited about, all that. So he was downstairs with his brother uh, helping him with Lego. And I said, I'll be right back. I'm going to get a paper and pencil and we're going to sit down. We're going to brainstorm some of the things, some, you know, part of your homework and I'll sit with you. So I leave the room, I come back and what I see when I walk into the basement is Andreas destroying this piece of Lego and, and my younger son, Sebastian's crying. Aww. So what I did incorrectly was I assumed that Andreas was the instigator. Andreas must have done something. I didn't even think that Sebastian had had any part of this. So I immediately went and I got upset with Andreas, yelled at Andreas, and he was he was devastated by this. And he was saying, but Sebastian told me to, and Sebastian, you know. So afterwards, um, you know, he was upset and crying. And then I went to him afterwards and I said, you know what? I didn't even think when I walked in that Sebastian had something to do with this. I just assumed that you were breaking something and I blamed you and I'm sorry. And he was like, okay, that's no problem. And then we had dinner a couple, you know, it was maybe an hour later. And um, we sit in the, we have five of us that all sit at the table and we do our gratitude and all that. So in front of the family, I also brought it up again. And I said, this is where I failed today. And this is where I got it wrong. And I said, Andreas, I'm really, I apologize. I didn't think about it. And I feel at that moment, he pulled it in more than it, when it was just one-on-one -on -one, because he felt like I had wronged him. Mm -hmm. But announcing it to, I mean, maybe it was just, maybe it's just him, but announcing it to the family seemed to really do it for him. Yeah. And uh, that was one example of how I used the mirroring that I wasn't able to do in that moment, I brought it back and I was like, you must have felt so angry at me for, and frustrated with me that here I am just blaming you, not even asking what happened, you know, so. That's perfect. And the yeah. affect, everything you just did there is, is, is it, right? And it sounds so easy, but you'll know, like it takes a lot of practice. It's so hard. It is. It is so, so hard. hard. It really is. That's so why let's break down. Hard. Let's break down the calm. So C A L and M. So we've been actually talking about the C, but let's define the word, what you mean sure. by it, and what, what and and, so, and some examples of it. So the C is actually connect, right? So this is where you are dropping your own agenda. You are tuning in like a tuning fork. You're resonating with what's going on. The other person, phone down, like put, just actually be present. Turn. Use your body, your face, your shoulders everything about your nonverbal language to tell that person, whoever it is that you are present in that moment with them. And we'll get to what you can't, if you can't do that, but let's just assume that you can in this moment. Putting the agenda aside is really important. Now, one of the things I want listeners to take from this is I want you to remember to connect before you correct. So as much as possible, whenever, it doesn't matter if it's your kid, anybody, 
when you start with connection, that's going to anchor you so that you're lined up with love versus fear, right? When you start with the correction, you're starting with fear because you love, and that's a very big difference. And the person's going to feel the difference and the conversation's never going to go the way you want. So that's the first part. The A is affect matching. So this is where the look on your face really kind of has to match the look on your on their face. So let's say your five-year-old comes home and they're all upset because they thought they had a crush or they thought this little girl in class loved them and turns out she loves someone else. Okay, and you're thinking that's so cute and you're smiling while they're telling you this story where they're very upset. My smile is not gonna match their face at all. And that, that gap, is not going to trip the mirror neuron cells that we need. What actually gets the mirror neuron cell, cells stimulated is when they see the neurological match on your face, right? So, and that's exactly what you did with Andres. You were looking at him and the look on your face was similar to his, ah, oh, here you are doing something your brother told you to do and I just jumped in and assumed you did it, right? And that energy is important. If you'd said it any other way, well, I understand, but you know, you have done things sometimes. You can understand from my point of view how I would think it was. Anytime we try to do that in any kind of other way, it's off. You're off. You're not going to have that alignment and it's not going to work. Logic so, doesn't work. Logic does not work with my kids. It doesn't work on anybody. Yeah. People don't care what you, they don't care what you say. They care how you make them feel. That's the yeah. truth. Yeah. Right. That's, that's this tuning, this resonance, this calibration doesn't come from logic. It comes from your heart, mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. from your heart. It does. So the affect matching means you have to sort of look now it's not exact because then that's weird. Right. So I give the example, I don't know, let's say a kid's building a Lego tower, they're building it and it smashes and they, or it falls apart and they're screaming and yelling you know, you don't want to run upstairs and go, oh no, this is terrible. I don't mean mirror like that. Cause then that, that's, now it's about you and it's how you're feeling. Like you want to come upstairs and go, oh my gosh, you worked so hard on this. And look, you see the difference? Yeah. yeah. Right. Cause the other way is just weird. Like yes. that's just, right? <laughs> uh, you, it's still about them. You're yeah. just calibrating to them. Right. If, if suddenly you come upstairs and you're upset about it, then they're like, oh, my God, this is worse than I thought. Right. 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 <laughs> you yeah. have to make sure you're doing that. Um, and then so that's the affect. Um, the L, this is the this is actually, interestingly, the least important part. This is actually the language piece. This is what you say. You can get away with saying getting the words wrong as long as the affect is right. If that makes sense. Right. So you, the L is for listen. So you can paraphrase. You can summarize, you can wonder out loud. Uh, and as you're doing these things, you're, you're basically just playing around with the language, but really you're just showing that you understood what happened. So would, can we use Andreas as an example? Would you be Absolutely. comfortable with that? I'm very comfortable okay. with that. Let's yeah. role play this. You're going to be him. Okay. okay. I am not going to mirror. Okay. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to do what most parents would do. Okay. And watch what happens to Andreas. Then we're going to do it again. I'm going to apply the con technique and I'll show you when I've, and we can talk about when I've clarified, when I've listened, when I've, when I've um, paraphrased, etc. So let's just jump in. So I'm going to come right in and go, what did, what did he do again? He what broke, he broke his brother's Lego that he was building. Okay. So I would just run in and go, what did you do? Why did you break this? What happened? But mom, I was just, Sebastian was telling me to do it. And I just he was helping him. He's broken in pieces. He's crying. What do you, why would you do something like that? Why do you treat your brother this way? What's happening? What, what does that make you want to say? 
Well, he was, he actually got quite upset almost initially and was like, but mom, he was telling me he was selling. And then he started, uh, he, the way he sues is he sucks his thumb. So he was like sucking his thumb and then he was like, kind of like dejected, like, and then started crying. Okay. Uh, he's like, but he was telling me, he was telling me. And then, and then right. I, I kept going as you were, I was like, no, but I see it, but I saw you. And I was like, I saw you break it. I saw you right. break it. Why? And he was like, but he told me. Yeah. So let's say I just said that to you, Andreas would keep trying to make his case about why yeah. he didn't do it or why you're wrong. And then the situation just escalates, right? Yeah. So if we role play this, if I, if I use the calm technique and I connect before I correct, I would walk in and I'd say, okay, so I'm seeing Lego broken on the floor, but I always know there's a story and everybody has an important part of the story. So Andreas, help me understand the broken Lego here. What happened, bud? Oh, Sebastian, Sebastian told me that he didn't like this Lego anymore and he wanted me to break it. And if he didn't break it, then he was going to throw in the garbage. So I, so I broke it. Okay. So, but I come in and I see this broken Lego and part of me is going, okay, is that really? So then I would probably, was Sebastian there? Yeah, he was. So I could turn to him right away and, and, uh, and check out that story. Yeah. But my affect would be like, I kind of came in here thinking like something was wrong, but I know that deep down you're a really good person. And if you do break things, there's either a reason or I haven't understood it properly. So help me understand. I love to start sentences with help me understand. Help yeah. me understand what I'm seeing. Walk me through what I'm looking at. Right. And when you approach it from that place, he'll say exactly what he said, only it's an entirely different conversation. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, and I love, I love this. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is what coming back to this idea of holding the best version of the child in your mind's eye when you're communicating with them that is something that i missed that day you know i my my children as any mother would feel about their i feel my children are beautiful souls and i forgot about it in that moment yeah, yeah. well and it's hard because we also get into this dual situation where you're worried about sebastian yeah right he got he gets you know the little one gets clobbered sometimes or that's mm. unfair and you're sort of split into this mama bear thing with both of them right so you're yeah. immediately thinking oh, what kind of person is he and if he does this to other people no one's going to play with him at school and how's he ever going to we go there and then the other one we're thinking oh my gosh you know his brother's really demonstrative and has big energy and poor, poor little guy what happened to him so it's very complex right but you can use this calm technique immediately with one then turn and do it immediately with the other. And you can do it in front of the other kid because it's lined up with love, right? That's the key part. So mm-hmm. I love what you just said that you're holding the best version of them. And this actually all ties together because this is how we help our children be the best version of themselves, develop a better story about themselves. Cause there's a difference between your child thinking they're a horrible person and they're a bad person and throwing the garbage and, and I hate myself and you know, I'm, I'm aggressive and I'm nasty and I'm a really good person and I'm a very loving person and my mom and my dad see that in me, but anger sometimes gets in the way for me, mm-hmm. right? That's a very different energy. And most, and I know from talking to you, your kids are exquisitely sensitive, very right? much, very so. sensitive. Mm-hmm. So when kids are super sensitive, they have what I call the burn. Okay. So this is a very immediate, deep channel to shame. Okay. And this is terrifying for parents because you think, did I give this to them? What kind of mother am I that I have this kid walking around with this deep shame, but it, it's part of their makeup, that, that feeling of being mortified. They have what I call a high mortif- mortification index, right? You could say to them, oh, don't put that there. 
and they hear, what are you putting that there for, you idiot? Even though that's not what you said. I'm the stupidest person. I'm an idiot. I've heard, I've heard my, I've heard both of them say that when they've made a mistake, they punish themselves out loud. They're still saying it out loud so I can still see it. That's the word. Yeah. You haven't parented that into them. They might've inherited that from their parents, but that, 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 um, that exquisite sensitivity means they are um, exquisitely sensitive. So, so literally all you said was, oh, don't put that there. They hear an assault. It feels literally like, a, like hot lava going right from the top of their head right down through their groin. It is the most uncomfortable, awful feeling. And most children will try to defend against that feeling with a flash of anger, aggression, uh, diffusing it by laughing, humor, laughing at you, they'll, they'll try to discharge that pain by making sure that it's now passed on to you. Right? And that's part of the, the pain cycle that you get into parenting a really exquisitely sensitive child. So in the listening, you said a few things. You said you can paraphrase, you can wonder out loud, you can clarify. Mm-hmm. Can you, you can give power. me some ex- specific yeah. examples of each of those? Because I have found with my children, I think we maybe this is after this, it's a good time to define what you call a gladiator child. Yes, I will. I have found only one of them really works. Yep. I have found the clarifying yep. only really works with my yes. children. Yep. Everything else, my kids are like, are you dumb? Yes. Why are you, par- why are you yes. saying it again to me? So yep. let's, uh, let's start with- so rich. I love this. So yes. Yeah, so clarifying, well, we'll, cu- we'll leave clarifying to the end because that's the one that really works on your kids. And, and a lot of su- like super sensitive kids, certainly um, really bright kids, that would be true for so the first one, which is just paraphrasing, you literally say the same thing back. Oh my God, so here I came in. You, and so what, what, what he would have just said to you is, you always do that. You always think it's my fault. You don't listen to me. I would literally paraphrase that. So you, yeah, so you feel like I come in here and I just, I just assume it's you, right? That, that would be a paraphrase. You can, um, you, can, you, can, um, you can summarize. You know what? I think this happened yesterday. And like two days ago, the same, this same exact scenario came in. I came in yelling at you and you actually had a really good reason for what happened. That's a really powerful one because it shows your kids, oh, she's listening. He's listening. He's paying yeah. attention. Paying attention. Right? Yeah. That's really important. Clarifying is really important because clarifying is less emotional. So when you're doing the other ones, especially in the moment, it almost feels like it intensifies the emotion. Like, yes, I am feeling like that. And then they get this wave of like, oh, it really does feel bad. And so sometimes in the moment it can backfire for that reason. But clarifying, tell me what about that drove you so crazy? Like what piece of what I said really got to you? Can you feel the difference? Like it's important and it's urgent, but it's more technical, right? And so kids who have that extreme, extreme sensitivity will often respond better to the clarifying. But I will say, make sure you're using the other kind of mirroring the rest of the time right? So when you're, they're mildly upset, when they're just a little bit irritated, when they're happy, I don't want people to think, oh, this is great. I'm going to wait for my kids to be upset so I can use this. Like, I want you to use this all the time. Mm-hmm. When they paint a picture, just instead of going, oh, that's beautiful. Let's put it on the fridge. You go, whoa, look at the way you got the sun shining here. And I love the muscles on this guy. And you can use the same contact, calm technique all day long, building up that me- it's medicine. This is the brain food. This is what builds emotional resilience, which is really what you want your children to be armed with as the world gets more complicated and more confusing. 
and more um, and, and pulling you out of real life events with digital devices, right? This is, this is it. This is where our parenting, this is what it comes down to at this moment. The de-escalation and the tantrum busting, which by the way, it's astonishing. The calm technique will bust a tantrum like that. Um, and when it doesn't, they're in a vortex, which we can talk about in a moment. That's just the bonus. That's just the bonus. The rest of the time, as you're using this technique, that is where you're building resilience and emotional organization. That is incredibly protective for future mental health issues, right? That is really, really important to understand. Um, that strengthens your children in, in terms of what's happening next along the line. Um, that's where the real gift is. And that's why you need to be doing it. The tantrum busting is just the fun part. <laughs> that's just an awesome little superpower trick. And, I, and I'll say, I'll be a bit more precise in my statement in saying that when there's conflict, the clarifying works better. When my young one brings home something he's sewn for me or drawn a picture for me, I find the matching, like the paraphrasing really work because then they get so excited that we're yes. excited, yes. but the, it's the conflict resolution piece that the clarifying works really well for my gladiator kids. So yeah. let's, let's define what you mean by gladiator because when we, mm -hmm. we have been on calls before and you had kind of gone through this, you know, I can't remember how many pieces of the checklist, maybe 20 yeah. or something checklist. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, oh no, that's, that was me, <laughs> me as a child and yeah. my kids right now. Yes. Yeah. So a gladiator, and I love the term gladiator because it's non-pathological. Like it's just, I just think, and it, it sort of captures their spirit. Like they're fighters, they push against everything. Everything's no, everything's why. And they're often very bright, so they don't understand, you know, they, they think it's the best idea in the world and it doesn't occur to them that it's not right or it's not accurate or that you would actually know something that they don't know. Um, they're exquisitely sensitive to their environment, just like your little guys. So they feel things very intensely. They tend to be the kind of child where they're very reactive and they'll have what I call the flash. So they get, they feel that burn feeling. And in order to discharge that feeling, they're super mean to the person in front of them. Whoever caused them to feel, or who was ever in the vicinity is going to get it, right? And then you think, oh my God, is my child a sociopath? How are they so mean? How do they think that's okay to talk to their brother that way? That was 10 times meaner. It's like a disproportionate reaction um, than what their brother just did to them. But here's what you have to understand about these kids. They feel invisible. They feel, no, they feel see-through. Mm. They feel like you can see right through the anger, right through the rage, into their vulnerability, their fear, um, the fact that they're mortified, and then you're still being mean to them. So they don't feel like their response is disproportionate. They feel like it's called for because you're still being mean even though I'm afraid, right? And then, and it really causes parents to get very confused. Like, what is wrong with my child? Why are they being so mean? And that's why. And so part of, there's so many things about mirroring that's important. We could talk for hours and hours about it. But as you are calibrating with love with them, you're tuning them into the best version of themselves, which means they're going to be able to do that, which means they're going to be able to manage those disproportionate responses. They're going to feel better about themselves. Their self-esteem is going to be higher. They're going to have built more neural pathways. They're going to feel, um, it's funny because I'll often have families that come to me for sibling issues or even, even their child having social skills issues at home. And I'll say, I'm going to teach you how to do this. I'm going to teach you to be the therapist. Who better? Really, that's my theme. Who better? Right? Than, than, the, than the mother or the father. And as you use these techniques with the children, you will see them just the shoulders going back, the chin coming up. They're, 
they're so much more grounded and they're not reacting as much to the world. So guess what? Social skills improve. Behavior towards siblings improves. Things roll off them that didn't roll off them before. And the most important thing, which is a whole other podcast, um, is connection uh, is the antidote to addiction. Like, I don't know what could be more relevant in today's world, right? So you're mm -hmm. actually building human beings. They're going to take us forward and create a world for us that's better than the one we're in. A couple of things when we were first defining gladiator children, and I'll just, I've made a couple of uh, notes here in terms of your definition. So you tell me if I'm off here, but they have super big feelings. So I know- Bigger than their little bodies can hold. Yeah. And it goes from, you know, oh my gosh, I put this, I put the fork in the wrong slot in the, in the drawer to I'm useless. You know, if I'm like, oh no, the big forks go in here, the small fork. Um, you know, they are obsessed with rules and justice and fairness. Absolutely. This is not fair. This is fair. This is just. It's fair if they're breaking a rule, but if somebody else breaks a rule, they're the first oh. police. Yep. Yeah. Thing. Uh, my children I did not know why this was for years until speaking to you. They refused to wear jeans. Yes. <laughs> I remember talking about that. So their yeah. waistline, they are so particular about the cloth, the, the yes. material that the pants are made of. The waist has to sit a certain way. The, the what is this? The neckline has to be a certain thing or else yeah. it's wrong. Underwear has to be right. Socks have to be right. Textures and food has to be right. They're very tactile. They're very sensitive to their environment. Mm -hmm. They often will grow out of that, especially the genes, because at a certain point, the ego um, will override the sensory issues. So when you're, they're a teenager, they're going to wear jeans, mm -hmm. right? But, but uh, sweatpants up till then. Um, yeah, they're, they have a lot of sensory issues. Sleep is a big problem for them. They have a lot of trouble falling asleep. We never did get to sleep. We got to get to we're sleep. Gonna, we're going to get to sleep. Yeah, yes, we're going to get to sleep. sleep. Uh, yeah. They can't sleep. They, their brain races at night and they think about everything that went wrong during the day and they could be five years old thinking, what if I don't get married? What if I end up in it with a job that I don't like? Like <laughs> thinking about all this stuff that ordinary kids don't think about and just fall asleep. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say definitely the reactivity. They're very, um, they're the kind of kid where, especially when they're little, like you feel like you need to wear a helmet around them. They don't mean to, but they're just always like, you know, moving and pushing against things and kicking against things and headbutting by accident and everything's big, right? So, and you can just sort of see how it's so difficult for them to rein all that in into this tiny little body. Mm -hmm. And they get in trouble all the time. They hear, sit down, stop it, cut it out. What's the matter with you? Do this more times than the average child. And there's lots of reasons why a child could be a gladiator. It could be ADHD. It could be just temperament. It could be uh, giftedness. There's a lot of different reasons. It could be, I mean, there's a million different things that it could be, but that's why I love the term gladiator because it's not a negative term. And, and these, are, these are all of the qualities. If you can get kids to just rein them in, that will help them be the most spectacular adult. We just have to get them there. That's the yes. heart. The other thing I notice with my children is they have a they have a strange relationship with discipline. So if Andreas can't get it on the first try, it's stupid. He doesn't ever want to do it again. And we struggled with this. Um, his father and I wanted to put him in piano lessons because I, he's he taught himself the Star Wars theme. So the dun 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 dun, dun. taught himself on the piano we have at home. We're like, well, maybe we should get you some. Maybe we should you know figure out if you have any if you enjoy learning music and you know we know music and the effects on the brain, et cetera. And 
when he practices a new piece that his teacher has given him, if he doesn't get it right on the, literally the first try when he's showing me, he's like, I hate this. And we have to coax him to come back. And I'm, so what we started doing at the dinner table is talking about failure as if it's a good thing. We've started saying, and I was speaking to Brian Scudamore. That's the growth mindset model, right? Yeah. So where, what are you grateful for? That's the thing we talk about. The t- and then everybody goes around and we talk about how we failed and we've redefined failure for them in all failure is, is that's just not the right way to solve it. So we've kind of come to the point where we're like, oh, you didn't try hard enough today to fail. Oh, poor I you. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So we've, we've been redefining what, failure means so that he's more likely to take chances because we know when we look at Andreas, Sebastian is this way as well. They're incredibly intelligent children, Mm -hmm. but as you were saying, exquisitely sensitive. So if they feel a a morsel of failure, it just, it overwhelms them. It's a tide that sweeps over them. They're huge. And this is a really hard one because you don't want to give in to that all the time because then they'll never try. And, and the, the minute the brain quits, this is a really important thing. If, you, if people are listening and they have children like this, the minute the brain quits, there's instantaneous relief. I was uncomfortable. I was afraid. That didn't feel good. I was failing. I quit and I feel relief. Now the brain in the limbic system, which is a recorder, right? It's just a recording machine goes, oh, do that next time. Start there. So what happens is every time they give up, they're more likely to give up the next time. And, and, and if you're not challenging them and moving them through this and getting them, which is why I love that you're having the conversation about failure. If we can't help our kids to try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, they're going to try and quit, try and quit, try and quit. Right. And then um, and that, that just, that just compounds itself into teen well, when you're a teenager and when you're an adult and there's just well, all this sorts is of why problems. I'm seeing a huge number of young adults that have what I call um, a pre-life, they're having a pre-life crisis. They're quitting everything. They're including school, university, like they're, they're not functioning. The, the anxiety will eventually, it's a bit of a beast. It will take over until you, you won't try anything anymore. And we're seeing this in huge ways um, with young people today who are really struggling. So let's go back to that. So one of the things you can do with your gladiator child who, who quits easily is you explain to him, look, if your brain was learning how to play basketball or skate or whatever it is that you're doing, your brain would already know how to do it. Your brain can see because they can already see how to do it or the piano right? Your brain can already feel what it feels like to just sit down and play that. But you know what? Your arms and your hands, they need to learn how to play the piano, right? So as soon as you distance and have that narrative technique a little bit, all of a sudden you're having a different conversation. I remember when my son was little, he had a fix. He was trying to figure out how to do something on the trampoline. And that's the conversation we had. Ah, your brain already knows how to do a backflip. But your legs, your arms, like the rest of your body has to grow the neural pathways. And you show them, like you make little, draw little branches on a, on a, pa- a piece of paper. Your brain has to grow that. That's why when you practice something and then you go to sleep, the next morning, you can do it. Because you actually learn in your sleep, which is another hint that we have to get back to sleep. Yeah. But yes, huge, right? So having them understand that they're building neural pathways, they have to grow and write the program in order to run. The program and that language is just more distance it's just an easier way to have the conversation with kids remembering of course to connect first never jump into this first always connect first. oh that's so frustrating 
because it feels so awful. You feel like you can do it. And then it's so frustrating to sit at the piano and you can't, you just want to roll around on the floor and writhe in pain. It's awful. Right. So always connect first and always connect before correct. So let's, let's move into sleep because this was, this is a big issue. Uh, both it has been a big issue. It's an ongoing, uh, issue in our family. Mm-hmm. And I'm sharing this, you know, so openly with people, be, not because I, you know, want to, or it's, it's really to let other moms and other families and caregivers who are listening know that they are not alone. And this, you had made this comment when we were talking in one of our sessions and you said, this is one of the big ones that I see with parents. So um, would you like to start talking about sleep? I can also share, I can also share about what our specific situation was and how we came to you. Okay. Okay. Well, let's start with sleep itself. So one of the big things about sleep, first of all, children are not getting enough sleep across the board. They're just not. Um, and there's a number of different reasons for that. So if we're, if we're threading and looping a lot of the conversations that we had or the things we were talking about over the last hour and a half, it has to do with regulation, right? So because parents um, are afraid to set those limits and be the frontal lobe and the kids are naturally pushing back on this, it's one of the reasons why we're seeing sleep be such an issue. If you can't get your kids to go to timeout, if you can't get them out the door in the morning to go to school, if you can't get them to sit down and do their homework, you're not going to get them to sleep either. Um, co-sleeping, which I love and I have nothing against at all, I think is really important. But at a certain point, at a certain stage when everyone's ready, um, being able to do sleep is a really important life lesson. It's a really important for things for kids for things for sorry, really important thing for kids to know that they can do, right? They can, they can do it all by themselves. It's a really important kind of rite of passage. Sleep is also a time where gladiators worry and think and go over and over and over things. So it's actually quite a, um, a terrifying time to be by yourself. And we love our kids and don't like them to be uncomfortable and don't like them to be in pain. So we are most likely to fall apart at bedtime on what we say we're going to do and end up uh, handling bedtime from fear ourselves. I'm afraid that I'm going to damage my child by letting them cry at night. I'm afraid that they're so worried on their own. I'm afraid that I'm being a bad mother. It's so complicated sleep and not to mention blue screens, uh, devices, uh, EMF radio, like all kinds of stuff that's going on, noise pollution, everything that's going on in our children's lives are also affecting sleep. So in our particular situation, I have exactly what you were describing. My young son loves to talk in the evening. He would always need a glass of water or he's hungry. He needs one last bite. And then when we would get into bed, he would be talking about, mommy, I need to in the future, I need to make sure that you're saving enough money so that we can buy a farm. And, you know, so he's thinking about all these, and then, and then it's, can you give me some math? Can you quiz me in math? So he wants to, you know, what's four times eight, what's six times, you know, his brain is just going everywhere. Just at a hundred miles a minute. So the pre-colari situation was that I was co-sleeping with the two of them and of course, overnight, it's not the most restful sleep. You have children that naturally should move around, but you know, mom's getting kicked and elbowed and you know, kind of pushed around. But in the pre, in, before they even fell asleep, 
I had to lie. I, I remember telling you this and uh, you were very professional and you didn't react. So thank you. But I was lying on my back. I had, with my little one. <laughs> I had to lie exactly straight. My, I had to be looking exactly at the ceiling so that each child on either side of me had exactly the same amount of my face. To, to, I mean, it was, it was, it was yeah. so crazy. And, yeah. you know, the kids, you know, if I wanted to hold Andreas's hand, Sebastian was like, you love him more than you love me. And it was just, it was just a gong show. It was a gong show. And that's such a good example of when you get into this, into this um, quagmire as a parent where you're trying to control conditions because you're afraid. They're afraid that your love isn't, you know, there's a scarcity. Okay. You're afraid that you're not evenly distributing it and that you're not handling the whole situation properly. And deeply, there's a part of you that knows this is ridiculous. Yes. This is ridiculous. And yet I'm a, I'm trapped here like a prisoner. And why can't I figure it out? Why can't I, I mean, for the listener listening, I mean, maybe it's completely obvious to you. It was very obvious that we need to tighten up our rituals and rituals. But I was like, what am I missing? I'm smart. I can't, why, how have I imparted such anxiety? The crazy part, you deep down know exactly what to do. It's just overwhelming and daunting and scary to think about how to get there. And if it was your friend telling you, you'd have spectacular advice, I'm sure, right? But when you're in it, it sounds so easy, but when you're in it, it is so profound. It is so intense. It Mm. is so real. And then you get crazy because you need to sleep. You don't care anymore. You just, I don't care how I do this. I'll sleep like a mommy as long as I get to sleep, yeah. right? Because you yeah. are really not sleeping yeah. on top of it. Yeah. And all of the stuff that we've been talking about, particularly this particular parenting model, requires a lot of your frontal lobe. Like you have to be awake and that computer has to be on and booted up and running in order for you to use all these amazing strategies. Um, and if you're exhausted, you're limbic, period. Yes, yes. Yep. Okay. So walk us through some, so we can, you can use some of the examples that you gave with us and our family. I'm happy to share sure. them as well. Sure. And then some of your best practices for how we can start getting our children, you know, prepped for sleep, some rituals and rhythms that you really love. You know, yeah. you had spoken to us about, you know, the age difference and how they get to go to bed at different times, which oh, went over. Passage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's important. Being two years older, a year older, you get to have a little later bedtime, even if it's 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal, right? And parents are afraid to do that and, and they want their kids all to go to bed at the same time. But that, first of all, kids know that doesn't make any sense. And you're missing out on some really lovely time, especially with your older one and with your middle one, if you're doing the bedtime separately, right? right? That's a bit of a divide and conquer. We'll come back to that. But so there's a few things that are really important. Whenever I have a family come, that comes to me, with sleep issues in particular, any big, anything having to do with sleep, toileting, eating, the biggies, the big three, as I call them. I never start with the sleep. I start with the baby play, getting good at the mirroring, building that practice. Um, It's not even a strategy. It's a philosophy. It's a way of being, just making that, getting good at that, at, at that resonating and getting sort of more masterful at the techniques themselves that's sort of like building up the foundation. But you know in the movies when in New York where people like are getting a piano in their fancy apartment and they have to pull the piano up the outside of the building to get it in? You've got to have a rope strong enough to hold that piano, okay? So you want to be building that foundation, those connections, because gladiator kids in particular, they're very intense. They're hard to parent. They know it. Uh, and they know they're loved, but they don't always feel lovable because they're not always lovable. 
sometimes they're absolutely horrible and you literally could be the most loving empathic parent and your child walks in the room and you're like oh great here he comes what now right and you're already limbically because your own body is starts to react to them thinking oh god here we go they feel that fray in the bond, not because you don't love them, but because they're so difficult and they ruin things and they wreck birthday parties and they keep you up at night and they yell and scream and they throw things and, and that wears away at that bond. Never how much you love them, but certainly how much patience and how tuned into you are, uh, tuned into love you are when you're interacting with them. So they don't feel lovable. And because they don't feel lovable, they think, well, if mommy doesn't love me, if daddy doesn't love me, well, then I'm just going to be as horrible as I can. So when they don't love me, I'll know that I was in charge of it. I was the one in charge, right? So they end up in this cycle of misbehaving, then you limbically responding to them, getting mad and yelling, then they get frustrated, then it all accumulates in nighttime as this big, huge conglomerate of pain. It's a chain of pain is what it is, and it never ends. Mm -hmm. And you were very much there when we first started talking about this. So the first piece is connection. Spend two weeks. Spend, you're already dealing, whatever you're dealing with, you can last another couple of weeks. Really start with that connection first. After you've done that, or during, you can say, look, I want you to be able to do sleep. I believe in you. I trust you. Those messages of confidence are so important. Letting your child know that you know that they can do it. Because if you're operating from, they're never going to do it. They're never going to, this is how it's going to be till they're 18 years old. I'm never going to sleep again. If that's where you're coming from, that's what they're going to see in your eyes. And you've mentioned this a couple of times in the interview that you've got to see them as their best self, right? See them as a child fully capable of this, who will absolutely be able to do it. With a lot of kids, it's not till they feel like it, which is usually around when they want to go to camp or when they want to sleep over, or when they suddenly feel like I don't want to be a baby anymore. They'll, they'll milk this as long as humanly possible um, if there's any behavior piece in it. If there's an anxiety piece, which there often is, it's a bit of a bigger issue. Uh, but start with the connection first. Then you want to give them a timeline. At a certain point, maybe not now, but in a month or two months, we'll address this. But for now, we're going to leave things the same. So you let them know that you're, you're the hierarchy. You're the frontal lobe. You will be dealing with it. It is something we will deal with, but not yet. And then you start introducing bedtime rituals. So I love you know, getting a little flameless candle. Each kid can have their own. You might want to do something different with boys. It could be a torch. I don't know. Some, they might like the candle too. Um, and you have a little song or a little rhyme. Earlier in the evening, dim the lights a little bit. Get in your own pajamas. Slow down your voice and your speech. You know, just sort of... Give the brain signals that day is turning into night. I love to get the little mason jars, you know, with the little fairy lights in them. Oh, those are like, really lovely. Just a little glowy, especially in the, in the winter when it gets dark so early. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these gladiators start worrying about bed as soon as it gets dark, mm -hmm. which can be 4.30 in the afternoon, depending on where you live, right? And they get very sad that the day is over. They actually, they sundown, just like someone who has Alzheimer's. Like they just feel off and they're tired and they're very sad that the day is ending. And what does that mean? They don't like transitions and day to night is a pretty big transition and, and wake to sleep is another very big transition for them. We also start to worry, Oh, here we go. We got to deal with the bedtime thing. So it becomes this energy in the whole household that everyone starts feeling. That's why I want you to mindfully calm down before you're even in bed with them. Then they can go to their little cupboard, get their little candle, go upstairs, say their rhyme Divide and conquer. If there's two of you, 
somebody can get in, be doing the teeth brushing or whatever with one child and stories with the other. And then you can switch. The more you can separate them, the better, because they get anxious at night. When they get anxious at night, they get limbic, which means adrenaline starts pumping. They want adrenaline because adrenaline is a stimulant. So they start medicating themselves with adrenaline. So their frontal lobe will light up and they can feel in more in control, which is why they start being ridiculous and silly and acting, you know, horseplay, horseplay and the whole yeah. thing. You can do that, but do that earlier in the evening. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other conversation we can have, but the adrenaline play a piece where they're, you're playing hide and seek or you're chasing them around or you're wrestling. Don't do that too close to bedtime because they're wild, but do that maybe um, later in the afternoon. Um, and then you want to have a very structured bedtime. So, and you can actually write it out 15 minutes. We're, we're going to have 15 minutes to brush our teeth and get our jammies on. And then we're going to have story time. And then you can blow out the little imaginary candle at the end of that. And then you've got your lie down period. So that's sort of ideal. That's what it's going to look like. And you want to actually come from a place where you believe that your child is going to be able to do it. Your situation was very unique because your kid, you had the whole family had been just sort of succumbing to this because everyone was just done. You were just all baked and done with the whole situation. So let's, so if you don't mind, let's talk about what, cause we did, there was a bunch of things that we did to get your boys to a place and, and it would be helpful for people to hear what you went through and then where you are now. Sure. So the first thing we did was we separated their bedtime. So we were, to your point, we were bringing them to bed at the same time. So we brought, because Sebastian is such a talker, he can talk for 45 minutes to an hour. We pushed our bedtime routine. Instead of coming upstairs at eight, we started coming up at 6.45 with him. So it was just me coming up with him. So he got extra mummy Sebby time. Mm-hmm. And then Andreas, the big boy, got to come up at 7.45. So he got to stay downstairs for a full hour afterwards. So he felt like the boss. He felt amazing That's with that. Amazing. Yeah. And then that would, so we were able to, so I brought Sebastian up. We would do the, you know, the bath. We would do the brushing of the teeth. Uh, We have, we don't do, I like the Mason with the fire. We just have an essential oil diffuser that we would turn on and he would get to choose the, you know, the oil. We had two of them that he could choose from. So he would choose the scent that he wanted. And then we would talk. Then he would get his talking out and it was just me and him. It was the cuddles that he wanted. It was the talking. And so he was usually asleep about, call it 45 minutes to an hour later. Mm-hmm. So an hour passes. It's now 745. Now Andreas comes upstairs and Giovanni, my partner, is help, he's like getting him, you know, hair, uh, sorry, uh, teeth brushed and, you know, pajamas on and all that. And then I would go into his bed and we would do evening cuddles. And he isn't so much of a talker, but he needs to be held. So he needs to be rubbed and he likes to be scratched and he's kind of, he's very sensory that way. So we would do that with him and, and Andreas was able to, from 7.45, he was asleep at eight. Yeah. He was, uh, he was asleep. This very- solved the problem of them fighting over you. And I remember, I remember when I suggested to you having different bedtimes, your, your initial instinct was, oh, I don't know if that's going to work. I don't know if they're going to go for that. But you, it usually is, it usually ends up not being such a big deal. Very true. Yeah. And I was texting you, I think it was earlier this week or maybe last, last week, Andreas came to us and said, you know, after a morning, uh, you know, woke up and he said, you know what, mommy, I think I want to sleep by myself. I think I can do this. So we were like, that's amazing. So how can we, how can we make it easier for you? And he was like, well, this and this. So, you know, to, as the evening was getting closer, 
he was starting to get a little bit anxious. He was like, I don't know if I could do this, you know? And I said, you know, this is what we can do for you, baby. Let's get, I'm going to bring Sebastian out of your room. Cause before I think I mentioned it, we were all sort of in one room. Yep. So we separated. So I take Sebastian now up this hour earlier. We go into a different room. Sebastian's completely asleep by the time Andreas is up coming upstairs at 7:45. And I said, Gio is going to do the the baby play. he's going to do Elmo. We didn't say well, he's going to do the Olympic bonding. The plan too is that they would bond, right? They yeah. would connect. Yeah. yeah. So he so and uh, you know so Giovanni has pictures of him on his phone and like you know they he uh, carries him like a baby so he like kind of nuzzles him and Andreas loves his beard so Andreas is very tactile he likes to like scratchy things so I have um, calluses on my hands from weights he likes to rub those you know so he likes to rub the scratchy beard yeah. kind of thing yeah so he would rub his beard and so Andreas would now is sleeping in his own bed doesn't need anybody in the bed. Gio is lying there holding his hand until he falls asleep, but that is a massive, and we're not, we're still not there where they're, you were in one space with them looking at the ceiling because they were fighting over you. Over my cheeks. They over, they were like, oh no, he has more cheek. He has, I can see that he has more of your eye than, it, it was so, um, it it was stressful. And you feel like Andreas is happier much happier, so much calmer. He's allowing himself to bond and love and be the child that he is. I mean, he's nine, but he's that glad, knows everything. He's like nine going on 29. Sometimes it feels like he knows everything, been there, done that, you know, it's all on YouTube. Um, But now he's allowing himself, you know, to your point around when we first started this conversation with the street kids, so tough, know everything. But then at night, he's He's just really vulnerable. He's allowing himself to be the child and and asking for what he needs, which is also, I don't know if you notice this with, with, with gladiator children, but because they are so sensitive, uh, I find at least with Andreas, my older son, he has a harder time asking for what he wants, but now he's asking. So our cuddle time is either, you know, I will leave Sebastian and, and go to, and go cuddle him. Or if he's fallen asleep and for some reason I'm, I'm still with Sebastian and Sebastian's still talking or something, he comes to me in the morning and gets his cuddles. Like he's not upset about it anymore. He knows it's either beginning or. That's how you know the system is recalibrated, right? Nobody's fighting over you so much anymore. Everyone, there's no scarcity anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're, I mean, and I don't want to say too much, but I just remember how exhausted you were. You were so done. You were so I was crying. Really, I was like crying. you were like Gumby being stretched in mm-hmm. every single direction and, and they were never gonna get enough that way. And it was just a system that was just not going to be able to withstand that kind of tension. And so many people that are listening right now are in that situation. And at the beginning, this is what I really want people to understand. When you're in that state, you cannot imagine how you're going to get out of it. Like, when did we have, when did we start working this? Like a couple of months ago. It wasn't even that long ago. It was, I want to say October or November. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. Mm -hmm. But if I told you then, oh, don't worry. In two months, this is what it's going to look like. Would you believe me? No. No. Especially because Andreas, because they were both literally fighting over me. And then it was the, you love him more than you love me because I know you're holding his hand. And then, you know, you have to, you're like, okay, so now I got to address the reticular activating system. And right. I have to, you know, I have to do all this. Right. So, uh, well, and that quagmire of trying, and this is the key thing, because when we parent from fear or do anything from fear, basically we're just trying to control conditions. Mm. You can never, ever control conditions, not with people, mm-hmm. not at all, and usually not in general anyway. 
but you can always control your emotional response to it. And that's where we start, right? And that's why you're in such a different place. And the kids themselves are gonna feel so much more confident, so much more comfortable, so much less afraid of their own emotions. That whole scarcity thing is gone. And I remember, I remember saying it's true for so many families, the kids just had too much power. Mm -hmm. Right. You didn't, that's, that, it was all well-meaning and we get ourselves into this mess sometimes with our kids, but children, when they have too much power are miserable and anxious and angry and impossible. And they will keep pushing you and pushing you until they feel you properly substituting their frontal lobe. Right. Which can seem so daunting and so impossible. And this happens in a lot of families too. It's usually the mamas that are the ones that are fought over, right? Mommy, mommy, mommy. I don't want daddy. I don't want daddy. Um, and it, it, that's a huge dynamic. And so often the dads feel so hurt, right? And they get into a situation where like, wow, well, mommy's with your brother now. And what's wrong with me? And I love you. And they sort of, um, the energy is that they're trying to pull the child away from mommy, which just increases the scarcity and the anxiety. Mm -hmm. So a really big part of it is to have the dads go, you know, I get it. Totally get why you want mommy. She's so soft and she smells good. And I totally get why you'd want her, not me. And then they don't have the sense anymore that the dad's trying to pull them away from mom. So, so they, they have to fight over her. Yeah. 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 That also. So the dads actually take on a, a really important role. If that's a dynamic that the family is struggling with, um, that's a really important piece of it. Right. And, and the other thing that happens, which is a, you know, a whole other conversation is it often polarizes the couple. Mm -hmm. you're, you're ridiculous this is enough already you need your sleep you need to get them in their own bed blah, 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 blah. and then yeah whoa like hold on there's a lot going on here my kids are really suffering there's a lot of and you're both right okay mm -hmm. you're both right um and that i see that all the time that parents polarize uh, you do need to be empathic and understanding and give it time and and work towards goals but you also have to take you have to be a good friend to love you have to let your children know that you're in charge or they're the passenger on the plane on that bumpy flight without anyone flying the plane. This is the extension, I think, or the follow-up to attachment parenting. And, you know, when I was, I remember when I was pregnant with my boys, I was, you know, reading the baby, you know, doctor, anything that Dr. Sears put out, I was reading it. You know, I said, I'm going to, bre I mean, I'm breastfed both of them for, you know, I think it was 18 or 19 months with the first and almost three years with the second. So I did extended breastfeeding. We did co-sleeping, all that stuff. But I think the missing piece for me, and I hope this is resonating with the listener who's hearing this, is if you do resonate with that theory or that idea around attachment parenting, that the connected parenting model and framework that you're putting forward is the extension of that. Yeah. And yeah. It ha it's how we can- It's a balancer to that too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I also, like when I had my kids, that's what I was following. And I think the piece of that, because th that's where parenting is gone. It's either totally attachment based, but then kids feel afraid that there's no limits. Kids, you have to organize, prioritize, motivate, set limits. There's a whole thing about timeouts being bad. I think timeouts are so important. Having natural consequences it is incredibly important to childhood. Um, and, and knowing that those consequences are reliable, predictable, sensible, not laid out in anger, but they're there is essential to mental health. That's the piece I really want listeners to hear. The attachment part's only half. The frontal lobe part's the other half. The limits that, and, and um, having your kids go into a reset is all important. If you don't set limits for your child, if you don't provide consequences for your children, life will. And life is a much 
harsher teacher. Trust me. I want to touch briefly on teenagers because mm-hmm. I think that this goes really well with what you're talking about with the idea of consequences. Mm-hmm. And I often, you know, I have friends with teenagers, I see teenagers, and I think for me, I often think, wow, that's when the parenting really begins because they, and I know you have some thoughts on, you know, what a teenager like you know the experience of being a teenager today and how that's so different than how we've really ever experienced or had you know adolescents that are 13 to 19 to 25 yeah. up in the past how do we continue to connect with our teenagers to communicate with them to keep them safe you know mm-hmm. things like uh, you know we can maybe use an example of vaping because i see that this is everywhere now vaping stores or i don't even know how it's legal but yeah, it's, uh, it's a problem with the teenage with with yeah. that population yep. you know if we want to keep them safe how do we continue to communicate with teenagers because they're trying to almost uh and and i'll i'll let you actually speak to this but it almost seems like they're trying to rebel or remove or individuate themselves yeah. from us yeah. What it means to be a teenager. That's what it yeah. means to be a teenager. So let me give a broad uh, statement first, which I think is really important. It's going to help everyone listening who doesn't have a teenager yet, because you will. And if you have a teenager, it'll, it'll, you'll really love this. All of the stuff we're talking about today, particularly the calm technique, which is the first part of the interview, that's the core technique. That's the foundation. And I, when I first started coming up with this model, which is a living, breathing thing that I'm always adding to, I thought I was, I was thinking that it wouldn't work as well with teenagers, but it works better with teenagers. It is literally teen whispering. It's the only <laughs> way to talk to a teenager, right? Because they want to be heard and they want to individuate and they think they know everything. So there's a few things you need to know. One, take into context, please, everything that we talked about earlier, which is the world being different and digital stuff and social media and social marketing and parents raising their kids, not setting enough limits and boundaries and kids really having a difficult time with that. Then know that the teenage brain is actually structurally different. So there are more neurons in a teenage brain than there are in an adult brain. They need more stimulation. They get bored more easily. They downgrade danger. And if you just think back to being 14 or 15, you'll remember, you think that adults are stupid and they don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Now they've been raised with an entire media culture that supports that on top of it. I cannot say enough about, and this is a really tough one and it's not going anywhere, but screens and phones. Absolute uh, dynamic correlation between cell phones in particular and anxiety and depression Uh, and self-harm. You know, I don't want to scare people out there, but it's a really big problem. So if your teenagers are young or your kids are young, delay getting that phone as long as you can. I like to say wait till eight, um, till grade eight. Uh, wait even longer if you can. The minute you get that phone, you will see a change in your child. Uh, you're in the way and they just want to get to their device. They just want to get to their YouTube things. They just want to get to their screens. So that's a very big problem. When kids are on screens, they are constantly hit with dopamine. Dopamine is a hormone that's supposed to reward you for doing something boring, like fishing or hunting, right? Bored, bored, bored. Oh, I caught a fish. Okay, but all of the app companies and video game designers and all Snapchat, all of those things, the likes, all of it have captured this incredible weakness that the human brain has, which is that they want to reward right away. So now the brain is so used to dopamine and dopamine always leads to addiction. Doesn't matter what it is, shopping, porn, 
alcohol, it doesn't matter. Working. The more anything, the yeah. more you need that thing, the more you'll need of it the next time to get the same thrill you got the last time. And that's how dopamine works. The dopamine receptors die and you need more the next time. Sugar, yeah, the whole thing. So we're changing the brain, essentially. Um, oxytocin and serotonin lead to happiness. Uh, those other things lead to pleasure. And we've that, we have wildly confused happiness and pleasure in our culture. We've mixed it all up. Happiness um, is from, you'll get from serotonin, oxytocin, those natural, everything that we talked about in the beginning part of this conversation, board game together, cuddling yeah. together, even watching a show together, even mm -hmm. watching a screen together, you're going to get serotonin and oxytocin. Those are the antidote. That's, that is what I said will we'll give you the antidote to um, addiction, right? Um, so, so that's a whole thing. So the teenage brain is completely different. Then, and take apart the whole culture and how different things are. Now add social media and social marketing and how depressed kids get that they don't get enough likes and that everyone's digitally changing their photographs. I can't even, we, this would be a whole other two hour conversation, but that is where our teenagers are. We've also been sold this idea that teenagers are, that adolescence is a human developmental stage and it's not, it's a Western phenomenon. Okay, so in most cultures in the world, you're a child and then you're an apprentice adult. In our culture, and really only in the last maybe, maybe 80 years, you are a child, then you're an adolescent, then you're an adult, right? So it used to be, if you go back 80 years, 100 years, kids would go to school till about the eighth grade. Uh, they might go on, but they would be seen as an adult now in the household. They would be and oriented to and wanting to impress and be included by the adult community. Look at I'm a man, look at him. Like there was this idea that you wanted to belong to the adult community. Now in our youth obsessed culture, it's adults are idiots. I don't want to even be that you're past 25 year old, right? So we've had a huge shift there. So now we have um, kids in this long extended adolescence, which pretty much goes to 30 now, really, mm -hmm. who don't have a role, who nobody depends on for anything, who there aren't jobs for them. We don't even know what kind of jobs there's going to be for our kids. We don't even know what it's going to look like. The world is changing so quickly. This is going to sound dramatic, but I hear it all the time in my office. Young people are terribly worried about, is the world even going to support them in 15 or 20 years? I can't tell you how many kids say to me, I don't even know if I'm going to be alive at 30. I don't even know if I can have kids. There's this tremendous hopeless sense that children have. And even with little ones like yours, they'll, they're hearing about global warming and what's the world going to look like and CO2 levels and everything else, which is, again, a whole other conversation. This is what they're carrying, staff. This is what they're carrying around it's weighty it's heavy our relationship with them is the medicine it is the anchor it's all you've got you can't follow your kid to a party that's weird okay but you can stay right here in their heart so when they go to the party and they go oh i really love my mom she's really got me you know what I'm, I'm good i don't need that or i'll try it and then i'll stop but if you've been yelling and screaming and you've yelled at them and you get out of the car going, you better not do this and you better not do that. And you're in a huge fight and they walk into a party and someone offers them something, what are they going to do? They're going to take, take it. it. Yeah, they're going to take it. Right? So that bond, that relationship is all you have. So parents who are listening to little kids, get good at this now. Get good at this now. This is, this is where you practice. This is where you create this, the the expertise, the mastery in this. So when your children are 14 and 15 and 16, you've got this, okay? You already have this. You can still learn it if they're teenagers, don't panic. 
And I don't care if your kids are in their 20s. This works on everyone. It works on humans. And people say to me, well, how does this technique work on everyone? Well, how does water work on everyone? How does air work on everyone? Same, right? This is, this is a foundation to that connection. So it, I feel like the teenager conversation is, is a huge one. And maybe we'll have another conversation about it. But that's why I want people to really hear what we're saying today. Achieve the mastery now. It takes practice. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. This is not easy. My model is very complicated and very much based in, in psychoneurobiology and science. But as you can see, it has huge impacts. Right. And yeah, I think we will, maybe we will get you back on for another episode well, just on teenagers. I, I think teenagers, you know, when I, when I look at, when I think about when I was a teenager, all I wanted in the same vein as what we've been talking about with our four and five and 10 year olds, I just wanted to be understood yes. and seen and heard. So the, I don't think that there's a difference there. That's a, you know, just like air works on everybody. The common through line is that they just want to be understood and know that you've got them and that you are going to love them enough to set boundaries and set expectations for them. Absolutely. And, and, and it's probably harder than ever to do that with your teenagers, but I think that's really key. Yeah. Your approach has literally changed the way I parent. So mm-hmm. let's, we've been, uh, we are over the two hour mark. I know it's amazing. Though. I, could, I could keep going. It's, Gosh, it's I love amazing. talking to you. I love, I love this. So I, let's talk about where people can find you because I know when people listen to this episode, they're going to say, okay, I need this woman in my life. Um, so I know you have a podcast. I know you have some courses. Tell, tell us about all of those things and how people sure, can engage with sure. you. So, I mean, the easiest thing is to go to my website, connectedparenting.com. There's tons of information there. I really, cause you've heard me I get a two hours. I, I, I am all about free content. I want people to understand this. I want people to get this. I truly believe that it like lights up every little household and it's just going to make the world a better place. I know how terrified parents are, how scary and sad and frustrating it can be to be a parent. I talked to lots of moms who are literally crying on the bathroom floor. This is so much harder than I thought it should be and feeling like failures. So, and I've been there myself. I've cried on the bathroom floor. We, we've all been there. So I think it's just, um, it's such a loving, living, breathing model that changes and moves. So there's that. Um, I've got two books. So there's Connected Parenting, How to Raise a Great Kid. And there's You're Ruining My Life. Uh, the Ruining My Life is the teenage book. And How to Raise a Great Kid is the book really for sort of you know, little to maybe 12, 13, although it does cover some teenage. I also have, um, so my podcast is available on iTunes everywhere. And then I have my course, which if you want to dive deeper into this, if you really want to achieve the mastery, um, that's probably the best way to do it. So it's seven weeks. You get, I think it's like 28 videos or something. I'm talking to you as if I'm talking now, but tons of love into every module. And then we've got professionally formed videos using actors that demonstrate the technique before and after, because that's really where the meaty part of it is. That's what takes the most practice. Um, lots of handouts, parent assessment tool. And then I'm also, I do Facebook lives. People can find me on Facebook. Every Monday I do a Facebook live. I'm out there talking to people. And then as part of the course, there's also a closed Facebook group and a, and a coaching call, a group coaching call. So there's a bunch of ways that people can find out more about this. So I'll make sure that those are all linked out in our show notes so people can find you. And then let's, let's park the teen. We'll go deep into the teen. We'll do another one with teenagers. You know what else I want to say about teenagers? Cause this is so relevant to what you do body image, weight loss, eating, how to talk to your kids about that. It is so important. That's why I said sleeping, eating, toileting, those three big things. 
And for teenage, I was gonna say teenage girls, but it's teenage boys too now with body dysmorphia. I mean, it's it's a huge issue. I would love to tie that in because I think that's a really big struggle. All right, let's do that. Awesome. Thank you so much for you. Oh, You've been so welcome. generous with your time today, Jen. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.